everybody, and welcome back to Season 7 of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me sequelize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, that, that was good. That might be your best so far, Mr. Yeah, it might be. That was good, that was good. And also joining us, as always, it's Tim Matum. If all the animals along the equator were capable of flattery, then Thanksgiving and Halloween would fall on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. <clears throat> Appropriate is we're recording up this Halloween week. Uh, no, no. Thanksgiving week. I forgot where I was in time. <laughs> but it's the same thing, Matt, so it doesn't matter. True. It's fine. It's True. all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you hadn't already guessed from those little snippets, I'm going to keep you guessing for a little bit longer. Because before we get to the actual film... Let's thank our patrons, shall we? And you can support us on patreon.com slash sequelizers like these wonderful people do. Our executive producers, they are the highest tier on the Patreon. Three men unequaled in their support for sequelizers, except for maybe the three of us, you know, with all the <laughs> blood, sweat and tears that we pour into work. the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do all the work, but they, they pour their hard-earned money into the system as well and if you'd like to pour your hard-earned money into the system there's multiple levels you can go ad free early access you get discounts on merch you get exclusive merch you can get your name read out on the show just like these fine gentlemen coming up in a second have you can even again like these three gentlemen have pick an episode for us to sequelize as much like the previous episode we've done earlier on in the, the season the future world episode we've got two more coming up from our executive producers. And speaking of Future World, who picked that? It was Mr. Stuart Main, our executive producer. Thank you, Stuart. A man who I think if anyone knows him and has been on the Discord or seen our Twitter in the last like two years, probably knows what's coming up later on in the season from his selection. <laughs> it's Mike Salvia. And last but certainly not least, a man Matt and I have actually met in real life, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> meeting, me, meeting your patrons in real life. He happens to live locally. He's a nice guy. He's also an executive producer. It's Jonathan Firth Clark. If you'd like to join the three of them, getting your name read out, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers and support us there. And uh, yeah, we'd very much appreciate your support. I know it's tough times for everybody, but if you are able to, we'd very much appreciate it. It allows us to do extra stuff. It's how we end up having 12 episodes of this season. It's how we're going to do extra stuff coming up later on. After this season, we've got our MCU specials coming up. It lets us do more and cool things with the show. And yeah, we very much appreciate your support if you're mm. able to. The patrons make this show free for you, so thank you then. Exactly, but exactly. If you want to join me, you can. If you can't, it doesn't matter. They make it free for you, so bing. Speaking of things that ain't free, hey. In this episode, we're going to talk a lot, probably a lot about money, a lot about stealing, a lot about heisting. We did a, a heist episode, in fact, for Patreon not too long ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we talked a, talked a lot about that. And I brought up one of the characters from this film and the the, the preceding film. This week, we're fixing. Ocean's 12. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So 
bit of context. Ocean's Eleven is, I think, considered one of the like it kind of rebooted the whole kind of like heist thing in the modern era. In my opinion, we got all the like suddenly we got all the fucking remakes from all the other ones. We got the remake of the Italian Job and all that bullshit. And this is a remake that actually kind of worked. And I was amazed that like, because going into this when I was, what, I would have been 11 when the first one came out in 2001. I was like, yeah, I have no idea this is a remake. When I'm 11, I assume every film is an original piece of art and I don't know know the concepts of reboots and remakes and stuff. And I just kind of enjoyed, because it's weirdly family friendly. And apparently that was a conscious decision from um, Steven Soderbergh and, and the team. So there's not too much violence, so the good guys don't come off as like real badasses or like murderers or anything. Mm. You know, it's how all the guards they fight get knocked out and all this kind of stuff. I really enjoyed the first one when I watched it back in the day, and rewatching it for this one, I actually really enjoyed it again. Mm. I think I think Ocean's Eleven really holds up, and I think particularly the main performances from the main crew really hold up. And I don't think I'd seen Ocean's Twelve all the way through, or not consciously, or I'd seen it. In my typical sense, I saw it when it came out at like two o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And God, it's it's just nowhere near as good as the first one. It no. just mm. just undoes a bunch of the, the cardinal sin of so many sequels. It undoes so much stuff from the first one and just redoes stuff, but not in an interesting way. Do you guys have particular memories about these films? Like, do you have any particular ties to it or anything like that? Lots, but I'll let Tim go first. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I... It's a film I can't I don't think I saw I definitely didn't see 13 in the cinema. I might Let me have, guess Matt did. <laughs> Matt I did. might have seen 12 <laughs> because I really enjoyed 11 and I think 11 remains uh, just incredibly watchable. Yep. Um I think Agreed. it's Soderbergh at his most kind of like you say family friendly mm. um commercial some might say. Um, I think you, you describing it as watchable is perfect. Like, yeah. You can just stick it on in the background or you can just be like, I don't really know what I'm in the mood for. You kind of can't go wrong with the first Oceans film. Yeah. It's just in any mood, any. it's a Sunday afternoon, it's a Friday night, it will cover all your bases. <laughs> it's it's harmless, entertaining fun. Yeah, and it manages it manages to have a, a really solid heist plot and yet it feels, because of the, because of the performances, because of the charm that is pouring off the screen in it it feels very lightweight it doesn't feel like there's a lot of stakes to it which normally would be a bad thing and yet in this it kind of is great because it just it it just feels like a sort of warm bubble bath that you slip into um and i think yeah the second one is such a disappointment after that because it changes so much about what works about the original and I think it's a it's a real letdown. Thirteen is kind of a return to form, but you could also kind of tell that it was getting a little bit tired towards the end. And then, obviously, recently we've had Ocean's Eight, uh, the reboot, which I really mm. enjoyed. I thought that was pretty clever. It's probably my second favorite of the series. Again, a lot of charm to it, but I, I think the first one really stands out as just a incredibly well conceived and well put together film yeah absolutely i've not seen eight but so is is it a reboot or is it a spin-off with sequels as the main character a, is, it, is it sequely kind of soft rebooty kind of thing or like it's a, the deal? i guess you would call it a spin-off it but julia roberts is still playing tess and it's the same character right no, no she's, she's 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 not in what? it what sandra bullock Who? 
Oh, I always get those two mixed up. Women. Uh, <laughs> White women for Jack. But it, it, but it is canon with the other ones then. Yeah, Sandra Bullock is playing Danny Ocean's sister. Oh, fuck off. And it it works fine. Like I, yeah. I, I think it, it has a few ties to the original. Some are better than others um, without kind of spoiling it. But I think I think it pretty much stands on its own as a as a good heist okay. film. So in preparation for this, I watched the trilogy, but not eight, to just to disclose that. So and I'd not seen thirteen before ever. So this is my first time watching thirteen. Mm. I'd seen eleven quite a few times, <laughs> and I, like I said, I think I'd only seen twelve once or twice. But weird enough, I, I opened this before we started recording, saying, "Oh, I think I have a controversial opinion," and Matt goes, "No, you don't. It's probably, <laughs> probably, probably a very you know, like normal." average opinion you just haven't checked what the other people think well and that's exactly the case because i think 13 mm. is a lot better than 12 yeah. oh is that your controversial opinion yeah it is yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i didn't, I didn't no, think so I, I, it's very clearly one and so 11 13 12 and 12 is like down mm. there considerably worse yeah i think it, just to jump in here with some things i've seen all five oceans films um we'll get to that in a second Oh, yeah, I've not seen the I've not seen the original. I assume you're talking mm. about the original. I haven't seen the original. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't yeah. seen the original. So I was working at Woolworths, uh, which is a sort of sort of department store, or at least it was in the uh, yeah, kind of an entertainment yeah, but with pick and mix, <laughs> mix and clothes <laughs> yeah that nobody wanted to yeah. buy. Um, it's basically shit target yeah. for our American listeners. <laughs> yeah, thank there you. Go. you. That's perfect. Um, yeah, so I worked there as one of my first jobs um, when I was in like sixth form, which is like the latter years of high school in in America. Anyway, so I was working there and Ocean's Eleven came out in the cinema and I very much enjoyed it. Now, at the time, you look at it now and think, oh, it's full of A-listers. Kind of wasn't at the time. Um, a lot of, I mean, obviously, George Clooney was big, Brad Pitt was big, and uh, Julie Roberts were big. Yes, everyone knew who, maybe Elliot Gould and Carl Reiner, if you're of a certain age, and Don Cheadle and and Matt Damon wasn't that big. He was on the rise, certainly, but he wasn't there yet. So it was, it was a very interesting cast and it was very much a good and, and and big thing and at the same time in the classic way that shops do they'll try and sell you on a previous version and say oh buy this it's got the same if not a similar title so i bought the oceans 11 dvd at the same time as the remake uh, in 2001 having seen it in the cinema already and i really like the original oceans 11 film i think i've talked about it on the, on the podcast a few times in the past it wasn't well received at the time it's a little thing later for you guys for the rotten tomatoes with, with the Rat Pack, with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and Sammy Davis Jr. and stuff. But I really like the idea of it, and there's some really standout moments. Ocean's Eleven, however, the 2001 version, is a perfect example of a remake that is better than the original. It's more fitted to the time period. Without being too, too weird about it, Ocean's Eleven came out Christmas 2001. And I think this is very important, because I'm going to do a bit of a chicanery here. Britain had a surprise hit in the 90s with the full Monty. Small film oh, made okay. tons and tons and tons of fucking money and a huge thing. Yep. Weirdly, one of the reasons that film was so successful is everyone wanted a feel-good movie after the death of Princess Diana. <laughs> Sounds really stupid, but it's oh. genuinely how this country operates. If you don't know what we're talking about, go and watch season four of The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. December 2001, it, it, suffice to say, America needed something mm. upbeat, positive, and a distraction. Something colourful and cool. I think this was just... For, without being too macabre, the right film at the right time. It might have just gone and slipped by and been irrelevant, yeah. but because it was there, everyone latched onto it and it was a huge success. It did really well in the box office, it did really well critically. Everyone loved the fucking shit out of it and it launched a lot of, well, boosted a lot of careers. I would say, as a contemporary equivalent, 
maybe a bit of exaggeration, we'll see. Knives Out, in the, again, fiscally very successful, very well received critically, public really liked it, T- huge cast, and not doing anything new. This wasn't really doing anything in, in the way of the execution of the heist. I mean, we talked about in our in our patron-exclusive episode about heists, Rafifi and all these different types of heist movies over the years and the Italian job and so on and so forth and how they've done things. Ocean's Eleven didn't really do a lot new. It's just a bank robbery from a casino. Yes, some clever twists, but not. it's relatively straightforward, all things considered. Same thing with Knives Out. It wasn't necessarily that it was the greatest you know, murder mystery of all time, as a lot of people include myself reported to be it was that we hadn't seen one that was very good mm. in a long time and i think that's what jettisoned off when then obviously when 12 came out it overcomplicated itself and i saw that in cinema did not care for it at all oceans 13 redeemed itself quite a lot but i remember it being very orange <laughs> just a very yeah. orange film yeah i can see what you mean yeah. Yeah. um and it was fine but it felt like it was always oh, back to the casinos and back to the formula back to what works and it's like yeah it's fine it's, it's functional you teaming up with the previous bad guy yeah okay it's it's yeah all right i'll I'll take it oceans eight i really fucking like i like oceans eight a lot i i as tim said the whole danny ocean sister thing when it was advertised i'll piss off yeah that uh, instantly when you said that i was like i forgot of all the ties you can have it's a minor conceit but it works enough because all it needs all you need to know from that is ocean is a very danny ocean seems to be just genetically driven to he he can't escape his life in the same Thievery. way that the, the um <laughs> in the same way that in um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid he just he can't take that life out of them they can never really properly retire that kind of thing and because if you think that that's just how these people are wired that entire family line it's like yeah that makes sense I'm, I'm I mm. I actually don't mind that at all and it it doesn't play into the 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 film much more of that and the fact that it's a Met Gala rather than the casino it's different it's good I love the cast so I, I really like that one a lot. Uh, that, however, that it has one huge downfall, and that's even though he's not that in, in, encroaching in, in his presence, he's not that awful. But fucking James Corden, man! Oh Just, god, yeah, oh, that is god. He's he brings the film down. You've put me off already. Yeah, I know he doesn't. He's not in it much, but he's enough to be fucking annoying. But anyway, so all five films I think hold a lot of merit. I genuinely don't like Twelve. I think the twist Good. in I it. I thought I was bad. worried you were about to say yeah, 12's no, great as well. No, Twelve is bad. <laughs> Um, 12 is very bad because it has unnecessary twists personal vendetta stuff doesn't really work it's a, it's a minor minor point but there's a character called Lamarck who's a really really big thing and all I could do uh, the whole way through is sing in my head only one man and that's Lamarck speaks for the people well below like, <laughs> god damn you Les Miserables get out of my head um, like, shut up Albert Finney um, and uh, it's yeah it's, it's 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 hard to describe if I, if I just tell you the reasons it's bad People will say, isn't that the same as all the Oceans films? And you're like, no. I feel it's too erratic. It's too all over the place. Taking it to Europe is a great idea. It feels like something fresh and new. The cinematography feels off. The cast are very, very split up. Julia Roberts is, uh, God's sake. There we go. There's there's a whole (laughs) plot point. Join the dark side. There's a whole plot point. And we should should know we're character. Getting into spoiler territory here, if you care about that. Oh, thing, my apologies. It's not yes. the kind of thing really oh, that, whoa, whoa, whoa. that spoilers spoil. We we don't do we don't do spoiler warnings on this show, Tim. Since when have we done spoiler warnings on this <laughs> we show? We do spoiler warnings. You're listening to this show. On films that aren't the name of the episode. <laughs> we're spoiling Ocean's Twelve. This this episode's called Ocean's Twelve. You better believe we're spoiling it. Yeah. <laughs> so Julia Roberts is character Tess Ocean, married to Danny Ocean. 
uh, in the between the events of Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve. Part of their heist, remarried for the record, but yes, yes, my apologies, my apologies. Part of their multiple heists is to because that's the thing, another thing that kind of fecked me off a little bit too much. Part of their multiple heists to get the money back to what's his name, Ben uh, Terry, Terry Benedict, Benedict, played by Terry Andrew Benedict. Garcia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, um, he, they are trying to get the money back to him plus interest, and they have to do a load of cons to do it, and that some works and and multiple ones keep falling down and failing. And what part of one of them is that Tess is going to pose as the real Julia Roberts because she looks so much like her. I hated that so much. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> it's appalling. It's, it's oh, I think fuck me, and made worse by Bruce Willis Bruce playing Willis. himself. Bruce yeah. Willis. And I get that they did the gag in the first one where they had like Topher Grace mm. and Joshua Jackson and they're playing themselves and Rusty is teaching them how to play poker and it's all a bit of a laugh. That's fine though, because they're yeah. not and, entitled and then to the, the story. And the actors playing themselves thing keeps coming back around and like, stop doing this. Mm. It was funny the first time, now I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I think, I think Matt kind of hit it on the head where in the first film, and because it is this big ensemble thing and you know especially by the time you get the the difference between oceans 11 and oceans 12 in the time in between that uh matt damon's mm. done born identity uh which has yep. kind of stepped up his his so so suddenly like what was an already impressive ensemble he's like we said he's on a pretty me- meteoric rise at that point mm. to, to kind of the upper echelons of hollywood and so there was a lot already being made about like, oh, there's so many famous people in this film, you know, which is true and it isn't true because, you know, about half half of the 11 aren't particularly well known or, you know, they're people like Elliot Gould sure. who were famous but they're, aren't really anymore. Yeah. Or they're people's sons or people's brothers and you're like, oh, it's so-and-so's kid, so-and-so's brother. Yeah. Like Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn. I'm like, why are they in these <laughs> movies? Go away. <laughs> uh, so... The celebrity stuff in the first one, it's its disposable. It's not really tied to the plot. It's a fun little joke. And there's the fun moment of seeing like George Clooney and Brad Pitt walk out of a place while uh, Joshua Jackson gets flooded with photographers trying to take his photo. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. And that's, that's all it is, really. And then in the second one, it feels like they're playing up to the fact that they have a lot of famous people in the film so much Mm. and the julia roberts twist is absolutely appalling it Mm -hmm. it kind of it almost kind of breaks the universe um in a kind of last action hero kind of way like (laughs) you know that that sort of thing and it's it it just it's the cheapest i think this is the thing like when i was when i was because i'm i'm the one who's uh doing this film and looking at kind of where where 12 falls down where 11 did so good is the twists in it feel so cheap. In the first yes. one, it's it's a very cleverly constructed heist. And you get a... It's not the world's best twist because there's not a huge amount of like groundwork laid for it. But when you go back and watch it a second time, if, when you know the, you know the kind of the... How they get away with the heist part, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that the, there's bits that are happening in the background that are laying the groundwork for that and so it doesn't quite come out of nowhere in oceans 12 you have the julia roberts thing and you have matt essentially matt damon's mum showing up to save them all and both of those and, and the whole twist where Talor, the like secret thief guy mm. 
is like, yeah, I basically did it the whole time. Or did I? Did I really? None of the film matters. Like, Dance yeah. sequence. Then, then, then why did the film? Oh, fucking hell. Maybe yeah. so angry. <laughs> Vincent Cassell doing that fucking capoeira through the laser beams. How did I get through the uh, laser as well? Let me tell you. was his idea because he was into capoeira and had been training mm. for a few weeks. Yeah, and he did all his own stunts. Yeah, and what a couple of years beforehand. I'm sorry, just this is kind of important. At the time of release, 2004, six years beforehand or whatever, Entrapment comes out, or five years ago, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. That, the only thing people remember that film is the age gap between Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery, and it's mm. one of his last films, and her fucking just in a cat suit bending through all these lasers and shit. Apparently, the only reason that Entrapment got made is that some Hollywood producer saw Catherine Zeta-Jones and was like, "We need to get a film where she's in a cat suit." Oh, yeah, Hollywood's uh, that doesn't sum up Hollywood. Typical. I don't know what does. So you know, the idea that these lasers being able to get through in a, in a funny, silly way, it became a very actually it became a very big thing in the in the uh, uh, in the early two thousands. I remember like Jay and Silent Bob did the same thing as Jay well. Jay and Silent Bob do it as yeah. well. Uh, so many Tenacious D do it lasers. as well. Lots of lots of laser heists going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. It was basically it's a it's a shit trope and they shouldn't have included it and it looked crap. Yeah. I hate it. This was another this was another big problem that I have with Oceans Twelve, is that I have a visceral dislike of Vincent Cassell. <laughs> and I know you're Ooh, not meant to like him in this film because he's he's essentially the bad guy. But there's a difference between he's, someone is he, being, he kind of doesn't do anything wrong. I mean, he's kind of the bad. He's, 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 a, he's a wealthy a, French person, and and he yeah. he sells he sells them out. He betrays the you know criminal code uh, and and gives yeah. no, Terry that's true, that's true. all their their details. But there's there's a difference between someone being like a villain that you're like, oh, I hope you know this guy's. Uh, I hope he gets what's coming to him. Whereas when I just when I see Vincent Cassell on screen, I'm just like, I just want to push him down a flight of stairs. Like there's something about him. <laughs> And it's not a French. Is that your inherently English nature? Yeah, I was going to say, it's inherently (laughs) English nature. A Frenchman, you say? Well, I hope he has an accident. I hope a horse tramples him. (laughs) Bloody hell. (laughs) It's not not a French thing, although. Uh, yeah, hmm. he's just he's just such an oily guy. Yeah. See, I, I can't love Vincent Cassell, but kind of for the same reason. I remember first seeing him in Latin and stuff, and every time I turn up, I thought, oh, that fucking guy. But he, to me, is... I don't know. He's, he's very, To me, he, I find him very charming and interesting and stuff. And he was in he's in, in Westworld Series 3, bring up the last episode with Future... Oh, well, sorry, not last episode, the one before. Yeah, I, I so but as you say, it's, it's hard when you've got that kind of dislike for somebody. It'd be the same way of saying Ocean's... Nine, you know, we're doing another one and a sequel to Ocean's Eight. It's the it's the sixth, technically the fifth in this canon. Who's the bad guy? Jeremy Renner. And everyone's well, a lot of people go, oh, fucking hell, <laughs> really, really. Um, so yeah, I I do understand where you're coming from. Also because it's very different because everyone who's established in the first movie is either confidence artists, people who've come from the world, people who know casinos, people who do heist. They're in it because they've survived of it. It's what they're good at, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just a wealthy French dude who's like, oh, I just get bored. It's like, I don't know if that's enough of a, you know, a, 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 I am the best thief in the world. Uh, I don't mind the idea of like a thief's code or like the idea of an honorific, like I want to do it for the thrill of it because I'm bored. That's fine to a degree. I like that. That That's a good idea. But that doesn't come across with him specifically. I think um, I don't like his character, especially when he, he reemerges, by the way, in Ocean's 13. And it's like, oh, here you are again. Yeah. A bit yeah. part. But th- thankfully, only for about mm, seventy-five seconds. All he jumps off a building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if only his parachute. <laughs> Tim's hatred for Cassell. Actually, be fair, that's a good oh, Latin I, reference. I'm right there with you, Tim. I hate him as well. Oh God, you guys suck. 
Um, you you mentioned uh, the cinematography earlier, and that's yes. another weird thing because Soderbergh is the cinematographer for both films, mm. working working under a different name, which he often does when he's acting as his own cinematographer. Mm-hmm. But the first Ocean's Eleven is has such a great kind of look to it, very just smooth classy it makes las vegas look actually appealing which is incredibly (laughs) hard if you've ever been to las vegas um (laughs) the second one he seems to have kind of fallen in love with a sort of paul greengrass shaky cam everything's a bit kind of muddy looking and it it uglies up the whole film Mm -hmm. i read about some behind the scenes stuff in in preparation and watched a couple of videos on youtube and that kind of thing and apparently most of Catherine Zeta-Jones is so Agent Lahiri, I think she's called. Mm. Yes. Um, her scenes are shot with a handycam because it makes it seem like she's always in pursuit of them. So a lot of the when she's getting in the car, it's all kind of shaky yeah. and stuff. And yeah. D- directors use a camera to, again. If you've never noticed this, by the way, we've discussed this in previous episodes. If the camera moves or looks down, looks up, it's like my god, you've done more than a lot of films doing literally just <laughs> close-ups and stuff. But it, it, if the camera is stationary or moving or a little erratic it shows you something it's giving you another tool like the music or the uh, performance it's all part of it unless you don't know what you're doing now admittedly (laughs) there were a lot of things that came out in the early 2000s which were already around to be fair that some people did exceptionally well and some people butchered one of them was the sort of very frenetic action style that doug lyman and 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 paul greengrass kind of specialized with with born identity and born supremacy and legacy and someone's brother not legacy but you know me the Bourne films. Um, another thing was the Matrix slow motion. Then there was the early 2000s CGI and fucking everything. Um, <laughs> and then there was the very clear saturated look. This really high contrast, deeply saturated, Zack Snydery, Domino, the fucking bounty mm. hunter kind of thing. So there were a few really iconic looks, shall we say. And it feels like Soderbergh's kind of said, oh, that's pretty cool, and slid through them. So as I said, Ocean's 13 feels very orange because... Just pumps the saturation in there, and it just feels mm, yeah. muddy. And 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 this one is just like I remember Rusty walking to a car quite energetically, and the camera's behind him going quickly, and then uh, a car blows up, and it's like oh my god, and it irises out to him as in, in slow motion. The truth is, you it, it's an it's like anything when Steadicam was kind of invented or first very famously used in The Shining, just because it's used well there by an entre- uh, an innovator, shall we say, the technology becomes available to everyone else, but no one else knows how to fucking use it. So you end up with, and even if it's a very talented director like Soderbergh, you still got to become familiar with it you've still got to work through the, the the sort of teething pains of it and i think the oceans films almost very clearly chart what was a great look and feel this very as you say this very iconic classy slick film in terms of the color palettes the production design it i should put it this way some films feel like the future at the time they're too they're too <laughs> slick to be real and other ones are time capsules of the last five or six years so for example 2001 if you look at a, a, a news report, well, well, you've seen 9-11, but if you look at like anything else from 2001 and see what people were wearing, it looks like a fucking episode of Frasier. It's like, <laughs> it's very 90s. People are wearing like three button fucking suits and stuff. They're very baggy clothes and things. And it was all very distinctly 90s still because you're in a transition period. It's only in a couple of years into the 2000s. You know, it's what it is. Films like this defined how the fashion would go. It would be the most cutting edge kind of stuff. It would push things forward. So it doesn't actually feel how 2001 actually was. It feels how the rest of the 2000s eventually caught up to. Hairstyles, makeup, costumes, big silly fucking glasses. That kind of shit became popular afterwards because this film was ahead of its time. In the same way that TV-wise, Sex and the City ages very well most of the time, whereas something like Buffy doesn't. 
because Buffy's fa- um, costume design looks very 90s, mm. whereas Sex and the City looks kind of timeless away because it's very run- uh, runway sort of stuff. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is you've taken the perfect starting point and in trying to refine it and make it better, you make it so much worse. Mm. And going back, looking back at these things, Ocean's Eleven ages really, really well. I'd be curious though, in the same way we're like with Knives Out, how many people would go back and say, eh, it's all right, because they're not there at the time, because they see these huge, huge actors in, frankly, bit parts. And j- just essentially how much of it is nostalgia for us. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's interesting because it does it does feel like Ocean's Eleven, like you say, kind of predicted and slash caused a lot of the early 2000s like trends because it feels like it was responsible for a kind of and i know that stuff like swingers came out beforehand but it feels like there was a a certain point in the 90s where vegas was just seen as this very cheap shitty place and (laughs) have you guys seen very bad things with christian slater and a bunch of other people and jerry piven i I like it a lot It's it's a very 90s film but that's like really seedy vegas it's like a stag party, they accidentally kill a hooker, and then they have to do away with her body. And it's very madcap black comedy um, with John Favreau and stuff. That kind of thing is, as you say, how Vegas mm. was portrayed. Yeah. And I feel like, obviously, Vegas itself was trying to kind of remake itself around this period and be seen as this more kind of adult, uh, luxurious place without being tacky. But it feels like Ocean's Eleven did a huge chunk of that for it. And you also had, like, there was a huge takeoff in uh, Texas Hold'em poker around this time. Hmm, Which, again, feels like, you know, you've got quite prominent poker scenes in in this film and stuff like that. And it feels like it, it was just at the right time to take advantage of these kind of trends that were bubbling under that mm. then suddenly became these huge kind of cultural moments um, of that time, yeah. which, like you say, makes it feel kind of like it predicted the future to a certain extent. Whereas Ocean's 12, it feels like it's trying to catch up with the present. It feels yeah. like it's yeah. Soderbergh trying out these things that he's seen elsewhere and not really getting them right. And I think it's stuff that he would later do really well. Yeah, But, yeah. It, but it, it feels like him working through the bumps but not doing it on, like, test footage. He's doing it on this huge million-dollar film. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I I, I think it's the combination of it being in Europe and a lot of handheld footage that there are parts of it where it just feels like I'm watching someone's, like, home videos from (laughs) their trip around Europe. You know, it's like, oh, I went backpacking and like, like here's me in, in Amsterdam kind of stuff. It reminds yeah. me a bit of the um, the incredibly fast bit in Rules of Attraction, oh. where I mm. think the character's called Victor, and mm-hmm. you basically get a very, within, I think it's about a two minute long, his yes. like three months he spent in Europe kind of thing. He just whips through it, like almost like, well, he's coked off his face most of the time. So his, yeah. <laughs> his delivery is literally, I went to Ireland, they're all leprechauns there. Then I went to France and I sit with this guy. And it's, it's so madcap and crazy yeah. and very, very intense. And yeah, I think that's a very astute comparison. Yeah. Well, this, this is what I was sort of saying. The idea that Ocean's 12, if you list the reasons, like just on paper, like, oh, well, yeah, there's too many locations and and it doesn't have a, like a real pull. And a lot of the cast are done away with and because it, it's a huge ensemble. And there's really silly in-jokes that don't work and technologically superior things that don't really work out because they're not... It's like, is that it? It's like, yeah, and the story's crap. <laughs> yeah, the the twisting plot and the whole, like, it, none of it actually kind of matters. Like, the fact that they're 
trying to get the money back from what they stole in the first one is like, well, then that negates the whole point of the first one if you just have to give all that money back, right? That's just like... It's difficult because... It, it makes the first one less... State, give it less stakes less cool. to make it yeah. less interesting. Yeah. Well, I, th- I would defend that briefly for one reason, one reason only. And that is because Danny Ocean starts off in prison. He's, he's notoriously, as this whole family seems to be in all these Ocean films, notoriously good and shit at his job at the same time. <laughs> uh, um, he is, he's almost always caught. And I, th- I do like that because in the original Ocean's Eleven, they don't get the money. It accidentally gets switched up and put in an incinerator in, in, the, in, a, in a funeral home. Um, and they all walk away slowly. There's a brilliant pan out, by the way. As, as, as the camera follows them down the road, they're all sort of come to this sort of realization of what's happening on the big billboards that are following them. It's got the, the credits going on. It's fucking brilliant. Anyway, point is, because it's the 60s, they couldn't get away with it. And that was a thing that happened with a lot of heist films. People would not get away with it. So to start 12 off with, what the fuck did you think would happen? Of course we were going to find you. You you were, yes, okay, fine. You stayed in the safe room and were beaten up by the, the guy who was... Uh, in on it and paid them and stuff and like yeah but i know you were there so i know you were responsible i was going to catch up with you eventually and also you have tons of money also another thing proves that no matter how many millions you have you could never really spend it all <laughs> yeah they go through that right at the very beginning they like go through the well how much have you got left it's like spent like five million i spent i don't know i've only spent a million i've been living with my parents <laughs> like yeah they all none of them have actually apart, and it's apart implied from they've rusty. been gone for like yes yeah apart from rusty obviously um, implied they've gone for three years at least because it's it's tess and danny's second third anniversary yes which makes sense in the universe as well if it's 2001 2004 exactly yeah mm. yeah so even in three years none of them go off and like yeah. buy mansions and do loads of crazy shit and yeah. you know I don't have a problem with, 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 with Benedict running them down. I, it gets more convoluted when you bring Vincent Cassell's character in and it's like, okay, I kind of get this. And then there's still this. Oh, no, wait, now still this. Oh, no, wait, now still this. And then, it and comes then you've to- got Robbie Coltrane and uh, you've got, as you said, Alf- Albert Finney, who is kind of like tied to something in some way. And- yeah, and then, Catherine Zeta Jones chasing them down, and that's the biggest problem to be Catherine Zeta Jones. If she, the, her presence and what she's supposed to represent, and her Interpol stuff, and her forging uh, um, documents, Europol. Please, Sorry, Europol, Europol, my Europol. <laughs> Europol. Yes. So all this stuff, it's like I, think I can't convince myself because thirteen, for those who don't know, is a story about how uh, Ruben falls into coma. I want to say I can't remember. A, a deal yeah, falls I, through. I think with, he has a heart attack. Yeah. Because yeah. he, he had a deal with Al Pacino, Al Pacino dicked him over to build a huge skyscraper thing. He's like, right, what we're going to do now is we're going to just literally ruin him. We're going to make sure that the uh, the casino harvests all the money out of him and just, just completely fuck him. And uh, they bring Terry Benedict in with it. So it's like, you know, team it with the bad guy from the last one. Oh, okay. I do like that energy. And I think that's why it was at least better received. And there's no Catherine Zeta-Jones. She's just not mentioned at all. Um, also, no Julia Roberts in the no, third one. That's the thing as well. There's a few notable absences, uh, which is again, I can't, I can't tell if it's positive or negative. It doesn't really work, but yeah. But it feels like it's getting back to the casino stuff. That's why the thing, but it's also a little bit, unfortunately, a bit derivative because of that. But you have fewer random strands that you get in mm. twelve, and eight is very streamlined and nice. So fuck it. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because twelve, you introduce a whole bunch of new elements, but then it feels like they kind of give up on following the actual 11 because mm. the the group gets chipped away at throughout the whole thing like bernie mac is barely in this film which is because he unfortunately got uh, hy- uh hypothermia i think at some point he was he was really pneumonia. ill and he and he also had uh i think there was a scheduling conflict for him as well and then even the time that he had as you said he was then ill and the bit where he like runs off the 
to the toilet to like vomit and stuff is legit Bernie Mac running off to vomit, apparently. And it also has the problem that Julia Roberts, although they decided she'd play a major role in this, uh, was pregnant at the time. And yes. so couldn't, like, like when she is pretend, when it's Julia Roberts playing Tesh Ocean pretending to be Julia Roberts, she like stuffs a pillow up her dress or something. Yeah. Um, because Julia Roberts is pregnant. And then that, that becomes a whole thing with yeah. um, with Carl Reiner being her doctor and stuff like that. And yeah, and the whole, it, the it whole feels Bruce like Willis thing. Yeah. There's so much going on that it draws focus away from the stuff that was really enjoyable, which is the dynamic between all of mm. the characters in the Eleven. I would be curious to see if this is one of those situations, much like Bohemian Rhapsody, where it was so chaotic behind the scenes that even getting something like this out at the time <laughs> was a fucking miracle. And you're like, all the things working against you. So I wonder. Um, apparently these films are pretty chaotic to make. So mm. even even Ocean's Eleven, the first one, apparently there was stuff that was like being shot on the day that didn't have a script. And yeah. the whole um, when Danny gets out of prison and they go like, oh, you you what was he say? oh ted did ted nugent buy that shirt for you or whatever yeah. that's just Clooney and pitt making up lines and ad-libbing against each other and there's loads of that because you can kind of get away with that in such a star-studded cast that mm. have that as you said that energy and that chemistry and stuff that the the principal cast have you can kind of get away with that and i think yeah. soderbergh relied on that a bit too much and then as you said tim as soon as you start chipping away at that you then start losing bits of that chemistry and mm. Then you're left with people improving to Bruce Willis, and you're like, "Oh fuck, that's not good." Yeah. <laughs> or, or like, and oh, and then you lose like Bernie Mac, who's the comedian of the group, literally. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it definitely like I think in all of them, it does it does feel like there's a lot of kind of improv, and in a way, that's a really great thing, especially in the first one, like the kind of the relaxed mood of it all. But in the second one, it definitely feels like there's there's large chunks where it's just let's turn the camera on and we'll just have them be funny and charming without any plot happening. And mm. then there's scenes where they're just jamming as much plot in as they possibly can. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of scenes in Ocean's 12 that don't really seem to have a point. Mm -hmm. it's, it is literally, it's just them hanging around. And the first one was great because although there was a lot of that hangout energy, mm. the scenes themselves were pushing the, the film forward. Yeah, I, I think genuinely Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Eight have very little bloat in them. There's, there's lots of character building, charm and bonding. I think, again, as you said, it comes down to the, the, the personality. I remember there was an interview back in 2001 with Julia Roberts and I was saying, oh, it must be amazing, all these A-list, beautiful guys and stuff like that. And she was like, no, it's hell. It's awful. <laughs> they all like, they're like little boys playing practical. And apparently like Clooney especially <laughs> likes playing practical jokes on everybody. So it's, uh, it's, you'd think it'd be great, but it's not, it's terrible. And she, it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Not in a, not in a me too kind of way, but in a, you know, just like fucking hell, we're trying to be professional here. Yeah, I believe and, I believe both Clooney and Pitt are quite notorious pranksters, and yeah. so yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And also eating all the time. Um, <laughs> but then, the, the, yeah, Brad Pitt is eating in every scene. Pretty he's much. A, in most of his films, to be it's, fair. It, Apparently, yeah. he ate like sixty prawns or something <laughs> like that. He's just eating like just just smacking on something at some point. Doing a Paul Newman. It, he eats a lot in Ocean's Eleven. But it's not like he's eating in every scene. I think in Ocean's Twelve he might actually eat in every scene. I think yes, so. I think I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's weird because there's, as I say, Twelve is where the bloke kicks in. Thirteen, Thirteen has some weird. stuff. I know they're not really talking about it, but Thirteen has some weird stuff. And one thing I remember it very distinct because I had to look this up earlier because I was like, "Is Twelve the one where this happens?" I was like, "No, I don't think it is." Because they all fracture and splinter off so much. Because again, you don't have the central focus of the casino uh, like you do with Eleven, and you've got all these various 
failed attempts and alternate things and stupid disguises and blah 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 and and matt damon deep throwing a glass because yeah. um, the, the nose <laughs> prop is too big um in, in the 13th one uh they send casey affleck's character to mexico where he wears this big old mustache and he is working at the dice factory to make these fake dice but yeah. there's a strike so he has to work on a revolution i was like what is this <laughs> And it's it's weird because Soderbergh. I, I wonder if the timing worked out. Hang on, two thousand and seven was. Um, yeah, he did Che Guevara Part One and Two in two thousand and eight. So I wonder if he was already just hmm, revolutionary Central <laughs> and Southern Americans. So I feel like I could do something with this, but you know, serious. Get me Benicio del Toro. Uh, yeah, I mean, as much as thirteen is a return to form, there are a couple of things that definitely would not fly if it was made. You know, ten, well, thirteen years later, as we are now. Yeah. There's there's Casey Affleck kind of in brown face. Like, yeah, I, yeah. He's, it, it's sort of not, but sort of is. Like, it's it's mm. never explicitly that he's meant to be portraying a Mexican. But it's, yeah. like you say, he's got a big fake moustache on and like... It's like laughably cartoon moustache. I mean, I know I have yeah. a large moustache, but it's like, it's ridiculous. And also that orange hue on everything makes you think, is that, are they make up, yeah. <laughs> put makeup on and make it look more tan? And, oh, what is, mm. There's also um, Matt Damon using a weird pheromone spray yes. to get a woman to basically be ready to sleep with him. Um, the Roofie spray. Yeah, that's so not a great look. Obviously, yeah. he doesn't in the film, but it's still a very yeah. weird thing. And that's also something that um, the first one has basically an EMP in it, which there's a certain kind of film you'll always be able to place exactly when it was made because EMP went from being this thing that films had to explain, like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we yeah, do yeah, this yeah. thing, and then it shuts down all the electricity. And then you get to about, I reckon, about 2010, and people mm. just know what EMP is, and you don't yep. have to explain it. This was back still when they had to be like, it's like a bomb, but it's not a bomb. Um, oh, destroy the electronics, but it doesn't hurt any people. And yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah. Apart from all those folks in the in hospitals, but let's not think about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, let's, let's think about um, that bit. And speaking of the EMP and stuff, we've gone this long and we haven't even talked about Don Cheadle's fucking accent. <laughs> oh, don't. It's because fucking terrible. My God. And I, funny enough, I saw a little quote from Don Cheadle that was like, if you've seen all three of those films and you still think I have a bad accent, well, I tried my hardest. And when I auditioned, my agent said I was great. So obviously I fired her shortly afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why like, they decided to make him... Uh, I, I, I hesitate. I, either. Either. Cast a Brit and Eddie Izzard is in the second fucking movie. Yeah. So there you go. See, John, Don Cheadle's a great actor. Just make him yeah. a Don Cheadle person. Make him yeah. American. Yeah. Just fine. leave him as American. The accent, it's not like that's an integral part of like, no. oh, he's the British one, so he's the only one that can sneak into this room because yeah. blah, blah, blah. I'm a thief. It doesn't out. fucking matter. Yeah. And then he's they, just, they do oh, nods God. towards it in 12 and 13 because they have in mm. 12 when he's advising julia roberts on how to be julia roberts he yes. says something along the lines of like gotta, gotta get, the, get, accent gotta right. get the accent right or they'll tear you apart exactly um, yeah and then <laughs> yeah. in the 13th one he plays a very over-the-top american at one point yeah um and it's it's sort of him doing a fake englishman doing a fake american accent but just to jump back the the, the reason i mentioned the emp is because that is a technology that exists and that at this point Cinemas were cinema going audiences were more or less comfortable with mm. the twelfth and thirteenth one. Bring in stuff like, oh yeah, it's a hologram. 
Like and oh yeah, we've got this yes. pheromone spray Why? that can that can turn you into you know putty in someone's hands. Mm. Why is it a hologram? Yeah, <laughs> hologram Fabergé egg. But they make a hologram that as as Eddie Izzard's character. I didn't care to learn that character's name. You can fuck right off. Uh, Roman it, something. Yeah. Sure, naval. It only works for two minutes. Yes. So why not just replace it with a fake? Because they're going to work out it's gone in two minutes anyway. What's the benefit of a hologram, which is incredibly more elaborate and tricky, yeah. than a, just a fake? I don't, I don't get it. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. Ignoring the fact that it's a fake the whole time, anyway. But you know what I mean. But like, see again, that's such an elaborate plot point that just doesn't lead to anything that makes any sense. This is yeah. why I recommend Ocean's Eight to people because the technology is grounded. The skills seem like they're actually like, what are you doing? Well, I'm a grifted person who can make. I think there's none in the trailer. Where it's, um, Sandra Bullock's asking Mindy Kaling, how, how quickly can you make X amount of uh, you know replica jewels? And so, uh, like six, seven hours? How many? If, how much? How fast would you do it if I told you you'd have to live with your mother anymore? Less, less time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, but it's all grounded. It all feels achievable. And it's mm. in the mm. first film, it's like, oh, we, we've hacked the feed of the CCTV and we've created this fake image. And it's, yeah, it's all feasible. In the third one, we're going to get the drills that drilled the channel tunnel and we're going to drill under the fucking <laughs> casino. So I'm sorry, you're going to. You're now terrorists. Yeah. That's a war crime <laughs> or something. It's it? yeah. a war crime. You know, that's that's absurd. It's a felony, at least. Yeah. That, I mean, obviously, they're they're criminals. Like they're they're, they're, mm. they're there's a difference to listen up, lads. We're gonna steal a load of money from a corrupt ass casino motherfucker. He he has it coming. There's no personal problems. We're not gonna affect anybody's lives. The people on the casino floor, no one's gonna get hurt by this. Great, great. We're going to release the drill that drilled the channel tunnel under the city, under a f- completed skyscraper. I'm sure nothing bad will happen. Is it? What yeah, is this will, with you people? This will have no consequences later down the line. Yeah, you were mean to our friend. Um, <laughs> what? It, yeah, it, it is It is shocking. I mean, I, I know the nature of sequel escalation and things, and it's shocking, outrageous. I, again, 8 is technically a sequel, spin-off, sidequel, whatever you want to call it. And some of the people didn't like it because of the fact that it was too... Small. It was felt too grand. It was too simple. I was like, yeah, that's the first film. That's yeah, what exactly. you need sometimes. And I'm not saying you can't do a big James Bond over the top adventure. Of course you can. Just do it fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> so before we attempt to fix Oceans Twelve, just like the the Oceans Eleven gang, we need some money. So <laughs> <laughs> Do some adverts. We can steal it from some big businesses. We've got some Terry <laughs> Benedicts to pay, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, our first advertiser is Stitcher Premium. Uh, you know Stitcher. It is the fantastic platform for accessing podcasts, uh, a dedicated platform that uh, really elevates your listening experience. And you can listen to some of your favourite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium. Plus, you get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and much, much more. It costs uh, $4.99 a month, or if you sign up for a year, it's $34.99. And if you use the promo code SEQUELIZERS when you sign up, you'll be getting a month free. Uh, so go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use the promo code SEQUELIZERS to get your free month of excellent podcast listening. And if you're in feeling the need to do some capoeira to be a laser grid, then our next sponsor <laughs> may be of interest to you. Uh, today's episode is presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. 
Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you wherever you are in the world via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in the class just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you've been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home straight away with Sweat Connected. Uh, and Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's code POD, P-O-D, at sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected, for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. But uh, can you eat as much as Brad Pitt and then do Sweat Connected and lose all that weight and become Brad Pitt? I mean, I wouldn't recommend like doing it straight after. No. Also, I think there's a caveat there, which is you have to start and end as Brad Pitt. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's that helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to fixing Oceans 12, Tim might go off the rails with it and call it Oceans 22 and go fucking crazy. <laughs> um, Oceans slash Spider-Man, am I right? <laughs> oh, shit! But, uh, does Tobey Maguire star as Tobey Maguire, by any chance? <laughs> yes. He's got to steal things from Oscorp, but only... Uh, I mean, Tobey Maguire can get it, not Peter Parker. Um, okay, we're going to have five different Oceans films, therefore five different... Oh my god, we're doing all five. Rotten Tomatoes, that's right. Whew. Okay. So, um, I'm going to give you the um, the uh, audience score afterwards, because I find that quite interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. But let's go chronologically. 1960, long before any of us were born. Oceans 11, what do you think? I have... Absolutely nothing to go on here. I assume it was reasonably well received when it came out because it eventually got a remake and it's kind of like, ah, it's a bit of a classic kind of thing, but I have no fucking idea. So I will go for slightly higher than the year it came out. I'll go for 65, please, Matthew. Okay. Timbles. Uh, Yeah, likewise. The only things I have to go on is your praise for it and also I believe you said it wasn't particularly well received at the time mm. um, I'm trying to think my knowledge of Rat Pack like where they were in terms of their fame is is not mm. good enough to to make a judgement on like oh people were sick of them by then or sure, people, sure, they sure. were right at the peak of their powers or whatever um, mm. I think it's I'm going to say it did a little bit better than Jack uh, is guessing so I'm going to say 70 like I said Better than Jack, is guessing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to have another clean sweep. Um, That's the question. Ocean's cool. 11, 2001, ladies and gentlemen. What do you think? I'm going in the 80s. Just letting you know now. Just blame my cards out on the table, as it were. Classic <laughs> classic Jack. Classic poker face. Pause. Thinks about 1982. Says 82. <laughs> 82. Let's go 82. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, 82. Tim. Um... I mean that's that's a that's a pretty around where I would put it. I as mean well. Matt gave it to me, you know. Um, I call that cheating. <laughs> the house always wins. Inception. If I say elephants, what do you think about elephants? Uh, I'm going to go higher because I think it is tricky to watch this film and and come away with a negative impression of it. Sure, sure. Uh, Unless people don't like Soderbergh, I guess. Yeah. Like people would have given a shit about Soderbergh either way in 2001. I'm going to say, let's be bold. Let's go for 90. Okay. Whoa, here we go. Okay. Oceans the 12. Lower, but not yeah. 
<laughs> Lower. I don't think it's a it's a sequelizer's fifty percent drop or anything like that. I will okay. go for. I'm re- I'm thinking around sort of thirty percent drop, so somewhere in the fifties. I'll go for fifty four, okay. please, Matthew. Fifty four. Okay, Tim. Um. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, I I think it would have been reasonably well received because I think people were just kind of charmed by the cast. That and I think. Oh, it's, I it's think got it was Brad Pitt and George Clooney in it. I like the yeah. first one. I mean, we should say like it's not a great film, but it's better than a lot of the bad sequels that we've seen. Oh, um, we yeah, yeah, we've talked about yeah. a lot worse films on this show. Um, That's true. That's true. I think it's possible to kind of come away from it and go, yeah, I was reasonably entertained. Uh, it's fine. Let's go. I will also go for a thirty percent drop, which will take me to sixty percent. Right, Ocean's Thirteen. I'm wondering, since I thought, oh, that's a controversial opinion, it's better than 12, and you were like, no, it's not. It's going to go back <laughs> up a little bit. So I think, so I said 82, down to 54. The middle of that is 70, what's this? Yeah, 70-ish. The 12% lower than that, 68. Uh, let's go for 70. Bang on 70. Bang on 70. Somewhere in the middle. Tim. I'm going to go... Even though I think Ocean's 13 is better than Ocean's 12, I think critically at the time, I reckon mm. people would have been like, why have they brought this back for a third one? Mm-hmm. I th- I think it didn't uh, it didn't do well critically. So I'm going to say 55. Mm. So you're saying it's based on your thing, you said 60 for Ocean's 12. You think it's the worst reviewed one? I think so. Even though okay. I think most people would agree it's better than Ocean's 12. I think at no, the no, time... No, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it, that's always the Burton Tomatoes thing that's uh, that's tricky. Yeah, and this is why we play this game. And if you've, this is your first episode, we know Rotten Tomatoes is not a literal percentage aggregate. We understand that it's you know just above average things. It, but the idea is that also it's not just contemporary critics from the time. It's people that populated ever since. So it's very very difficult to gauge. But it's an interesting metric. So that brings us finally to Ocean's Eight, which Tim has seen and Jack has not. Mm. Twenty eighteen, eleven years after Ocean's Thirteen. Not a fucking clue. Um, I had something to go on from our earlier conversations, but for this one, uh, you both <laughs> like James it. James Corden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know Emma likes it. I know you two like it, but... And I hate all those people. But <laughs> it's a film full of women based on a film full of men. and yeah, Which is always... A... And critics are mm. often horrible to those kind of films. And granted, not necessarily the critics, it's often the dickheads on Twitter, let's be real. It's, it's usually the public, isn't it's it? It's the Ghostbusters <laughs> remake nutters who freaked yeah. out and tanked that film. Critics are like, oh, that's an interesting gimmick. And but, the public are like, fuck you, yeah. burn it to the ground. But this also doesn't have such a nostalgic connection to the like diehard gatekeeping nerd community like the Ghostbusters does. So, sure, sure. Yeah. I will, I think it's probably similar to 13 then. I'm going to go a little bit higher. Um, I'll go between again, judging by the, the fact that you two say it's the second best one, I'm gonna go for the second best one. Uh, 75, please. Okay, and slightly higher. God damn it, that was about where I was gonna guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the trick of going first, my friend. Rice is right time. Yeah, let's 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 say 80. Right, I hate to say this because we've set ourselves a little awful precedent clean, here. Sweet, <laughs> clean, sweet, clean, sweet. It is a clean yeah, fucking okay, sweep. Cool, ah. cool, cool. We are actually um, saying that as a as a rule this season, it seems. That's quite <laughs> terrifying now. Um Jack has clean sweeped it. Oh yeah. I will now Come run on. you through the scores. 1960s Oceans Eleven. Okay. 
I don't agree. Okay. 48%. Okay. I can tell you now it is the lowest reviewed one. Wow. Critically speaking. Wow. I I think at the time it was the like no one cared for it. It was like, oh, this is those dickheads on film. It's Where is it in your ratings, Matt? So so Okay, so two thousand and one is my your ranking. highest and then Oceans eight is your second. Yes. Where's where's 1960 Ocean's Eleven? In I think for the fact order. that it's quite cool, Ocean's Eleven goes in the middle. It's not perfectly made. It's not brilliant, but it's better than three, better than twelve and thirteen, then, and then thirteen and then twelve. Okay, personally, yeah, a lot of people might not agree with that, but there's some cool scenes, and uh, I have a feeling if I'd seen the other ones, it would probably be similar. <laughs> it's got Cesar Romero in it, so you know exactly. He's fucking charming as all shit, <laughs> and so yeah, right. The public, however, disagreed. Uh, the public reaction is 81 for the original mm. Ocean's Eleven. I think that's pure nostalgia talking, but at the same time, it's more so considered, you know, three and three out of five or five out of ten and above. And it's like, yeah, that's fair. It's it's, it's pretty good. So I think that makes sense. Ocean's Eleven 2001, 83 on the old critic score. Nice. Thank uh, you for the tip. Lower than I would have expected. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually a little lower than I would have expected. I thought Tim's guess of ninety would be how I would have assumed it would have landed, but evidently not. Um, similarly, the public said eighty percent, and I was like, again, really? Yeah, I would have it's been much better received, but yeah, apparently not. Ocean's Twelve people saw that piece of shit. Fifty-five. That is again a thirty percent drop nice. as Jack said. That's yeah. quite down. Um, Tim, however, nailed uh, with his sixty percent guess. The public reaction, sixty percent. So even the public were like, oh, "Nah, we're done here, son." Yeah. And they don't like you know, in the space of two or three years, we're going, "This is not good." Ocean's Thirteen. I mean, it, it's clearly clawed it back quite significantly. Jack got it bang on with seventy percent. Hey, nice. Exactly bang on. Um, Tim, I'm sorry, you you misread it from both the public and the and the critics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was seventy percent critics and seventy five percent for the public. Oh wow. People liked it. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just Al Pacino in lifts or something but fuck <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> um and finally oceans eight yeah sorry you're wrong you're both wrong the critics gave it a 69 nice 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 i think it deserves higher than that it deserves much higher than that. i think 80 is a very solid mm. answer with, with, I, I would actually agree with that it's fucking charming as all shit and, and the design is awesome mm. the production is great yeah. uh, and the cast are great the public those motherfuckers Uh-oh. Um, the lowest number on here, I think. Yeah, 45. And they you just, hated it. You just know that that is a bunch of gatekeeper-y yeah. fuckboys. Called it. Well, Called it. It's it's a combination of definitely a bunch of entitled prick dudes. And as much as I hate to say this, it's like when you say to a person who you think would be more responsive, uh, reciprocal, should we say, to something that's actually progressive. Like saying, should we have a Bond who's a woman or a person of colour or homosexual or anything like that? And the people you're speaking about, sometimes, I can say a homosexual person, a person of colour, or a woman says, no, God, no, 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 should be a straight man. It's like, and it's, it sounds stupid. It's like, I thought you championed this. I thought you'd be on the side of this, mm. this stuff. I was like, nope, because I also like the, the norm sometimes. And I'm like, damn it, that fuck's sake. Um, so again, I wouldn't be surprised if there's enough women saying, oh, I'm not watching that. That's just stupid. No, 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 no. Well, there's also the, the self-selection bias that, you know, it's yes. got to be the people who will bother to go on to Rotten Tomatoes that's very true. Whereas That's I think a true. lot of people, the the percentage of people who see a film versus the percentage who will go on to Rotten Tomatoes and give it a rating yeah. is negligible. Let's put it, let's just, show of hands, audience, we can't see you, but we can sense you. Yeah. 
through time. If you've ever written something on Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb for argument's sake as a review, not necessarily as a critic, obviously, but as, as, a, as a user review, as they call them, put your hands up now. I feel like there's about three people. <laughs> and it was only for some films that they really hated. Yeah, I, I am, you know... I, I do a podcast about films. Don't think I've ever done a user review on Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb. Same. Same. If I have, it was a long, long while ago. Yeah, I've got my own site, so I don't tend to put them on in that capacity. So again, our opinions, despite being extremely strong, are not present. But again, as always, as a bit of caveat, we know. <laughs> we we know. That's why we do Rotten Tomatoes stuff, because it's an interesting thing to talk about. It gives us a chance to write the critical stuff, etc., etc. But let's move on. Tim. Yep. Ocean's 22. I'm very interested in how you're bringing an extra 11 people into this. So, I have stuck. It's still called Ocean's 12. Okay. Oh, Fair enough. Fucking hell. It's no, also that's inevitable. That's inevitable. still being made in 2004. Ooh. Because my my justification for that was I don't want to wait want too Bernie long Mac to, suffer. to make it. And presumably the schedules of these kind of people are sufficiently complex that getting all of them available <laughs> to film is difficult. Uh, and so yeah. I, it's not like I've, a Spy Kids film where you can say it's two minutes here, two minutes there. It's like, yeah. no, we need you on set for quite some time for ad-libbing. So, yeah. yeah that uh, makes sense. So I figured let's just stick with 2004 uh, because I we that know logic. that either, hopefully we can avoid people getting ill uh, and stuff <laughs> like that on, on the are set. Are you presuming that Bernie Mac doesn't get ill? Yes. that okay, is. Good. That is we, are pre- we, we are protecting the late, great Bernie Mac. Yeah. So, Somewhere a few months early is probably fine. Exactly. <laughs> Um, obviously Julia Roberts is still pregnant around this time, but she does not feature into my film as much as she does in Ocean's Twelve. Mm. Good. Well, I don't. I'm, I'm already. I don't want to give away my my. Uh, I haven't read the picture. Obviously, we're going to do with this whole thing blind. I'll be critiquing that at the end. Like, hmm, don't know about that, Tim. But then also, I understand your reasons immediately. So <laughs> we're gonna. <laughs> I'll still say it later, though. Let's carry on. Fair enough. Uh, director, stuck with Steven Soderbergh. I makes sense. As much as I have criticise like the cinematography choices i don't think this would work without him if you, especially with this group of people like obviously mm. uh oceans eight has a different director mm. but that's a whole new cast that's you know like we said it's 11 years after the last one 2004 no sane producer is going to say well yeah we get someone else in for this huge thing the cast have a familiarity uh with each other and the director i think mm. i think to change out would be very very and, difficult and so that has made that. a bunch of money you know precisely why would you not carry yeah yeah Similarly, I won't run through the entire uh, returning cast because it's it's the eleven. Uh, <laughs> just look at just look at the Ocean's Eleven, you know, uh, IMDb page. Um, Them lot. The the entire eleven are returning, as is Julia Roberts as Tesho, Tess Ocean, and Andy Garcia as Terry Benedict. Cool. Um, Makes sense. New cast. Yep. I'm ready. I'm ready. As Julie Cassman, we have Albert Brooks. Julie, interesting. Yes. Is it like short for like Julius or Jules or just yeah, Julie? Yeah, short, probably short for Julius. Okay. Yes. Obviously kind of best known for stuff like broadcast news uh, in the sort of the 80s. Just done Finding Nemo at this point. Mm-hmm. He's, he's Nemo's um, dad in Nemo. He is Nemo's <laughs> yeah. dad. He's Marlin. Marlin, yeah. yeah That's Marlin. It, which is another kind of fish, which is confusing. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, he's also previously worked with Soderbergh. Uh, he was in Out of Sight. Yes. And essentially, the character that I'm picturing for him here is kind of halfway between his character in Out of Sight and the character he would go on to play in Drive. Uh, where oh, I was going to say a kind of yeah. for someone who is mostly known for his comedy roles, he's 
decently chilling in drive. He is he is terrifying in drive, and I think he's uh, that really stood out to me as a fantastic performance. And just just now, in the moment you just said Albert Brooks, I thought, ooh, because I know what he's capable of. Mm. Whereas at the time, it was very much playing up the comedy element. So yeah, that's very interesting. Mm. The Night Fox, not Vincent Cassell. Thank God. <laughs> um, uh... Alessandro Nivola. Um, ooh, ooh. Who, is a name mm. that people might not know, probably best known as Nicolas Cage's brother in Face Off. Jesus. Very, very he's waving with his little finger. Yeah. Very creepy fucking character in that one. Um, he's also in Jurassic Park 3. Uh, I think he's called Billy Brennan in that. He's kind of a slightly sort of action. He's the raptor voice. Yeah. Alan. <laughs> Alan. Alan. Um, he goes on to be in Junebug, the the really great Amy Adams uh, kind of comedy drama. Uh, American Hustle, mm-hmm. he's in that. Uh, most recently in the Red Sea Diving Resort, which was the Chris Evans Netflix action film. Mm. He's an actor that I, I quite like whenever he's shown up in stuff. Um, he's, I, he's decent, And actually, I think but... he could do charming but slightly greasy thief pretty well. I'll, t- I'll tell you what I think... Or, or why I think he's a great casting choice already, because in... Oh, fuck me. I'm going to get the years wrong on this one. I seem to think it's 2005. Maybe I'm wrong with that. There's a trilogy, I think. Is it a trilogy? There's a few films about football, soccer specifically, if you want to yes. be weird about it, called Goal or Shoot... No, Goal. It's called Goal. Goal. Yeah. Yeah. And he plays one of the one of the footballers, basically. And he does an all the films. I, yeah, he strikes me as that kind of arrogant... Kind of, I, I think that's a, actually quite an interesting bit of casting because if you say like, oh, he's you know the little Alan Grant's assistant in Jurassic Park, or he's the creepy, creepy feet <laughs> face off bad guys, like, no, that doesn't really fit. But I, I can actually, I can see where you're going with this one. I think, yeah, good shout. Roman Nagel, Eddie Izzard, hey. bring, bringing him along. There for we go. He did have a character name. You're right. It was Roman, <laughs> but not Naval, <laughs> as I initially thought. <laughs> you were, you were. One letter off. So close, so close. Um, yeah, uh, at this point, obviously, best known for stand-up uh, in the UK. But he's been in a few films. He's been in the terrible Avengers film, not uh, the Marvel not superheroes. Not that Avengers. The reason it had to be called Avengers Assemble in Britain. Yes. He's in Mystery Men uh, as one that. of the disco uh, bad guys. Mm. Uh, he's in Shadow of the Vampire, the uh, Willem Dafoe. I... Love that fucking movie. <laughs> I could have, I could have guessed that you would love that. Film. <laughs> um, a and then uh, he goes on. He's in uh, Julie Taymor's Across the Universe, playing Mister Kite in the kind of weird yeah. Beatles musical. It's me in the thing. <laughs> um, That's a reference. He me. is, uh, I believe, he's the voice of Reapy Cheap or something in Prince Caspian. The rat. Yeah, or the mouse or something like that. And I don't know. Cake. I don't know my. Uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, C.S. Lewis is questionable at yeah. best. So, yeah. um, and he's also in Hannibal, the TV series. Uh, does a he's very good in that. He's very good in that. I, I genuinely think I think as Eddie Izzard's grateful stop. He's kind of meh in Ocean's Twelve because he's meh. I said what he was really interested in. This is complete digression. I apologise, but he's really interesting in Valkyrie. Um, he is the yeah. Brian C. film. Yeah, um, I, I find him genuinely a really solid actor that's never really used, and I'm always pissed off about that. So I, I thank agree. you, Tim. Yep, that's all right. As Pamela Hunkel, Queen Latifah. Ah, uh, nice, nice. That's a that's a classic Tim casting. She's been in Chicago <laughs> at this point and Scary Movie Three, <laughs> oh. um, and goes on to be in Last Holiday, uh, Hairspray, uh, Stranger Than Fiction, um, mm. which is her kind of playing against type as quite straight laced person in that. But uh, she's an agent, isn't she? Or she's trying to get the thing on Emma Thompson on track. Yeah, she's like a publishing assistant kind of thing. Are, are you going with? 
more of a Stranger Than Fiction persona, or are you going with the remake of Taxi persona? <laughs> Uh, a, a comfortable middle ground again. Fair enough, that's all I need to know. <laughs> As uh, Orlan Ortiz, another Soderbergh veteran, uh, mm. Luis Guzman. Yeah, I love some Guzman. Um, he's been uh, Traffic, which is uh, the Soderbergh's big kind of Oscar mm-hmm. winner. Yep. Uh, Punch Drunk Love, uh, The Adventures of Pluto Nash, uh, just before this. <laughs> Uh, goes goes on to be uh, in Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Fucking hell! But also uh, a series of unfortunate events and uh, Narcos. He's in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Or recently, I should okay. say. Uh, and then finally, as uh, Goran Abril, Ricky J, who is oh, best known as yeah. a magician. Uh, he mm. uh, passed away a few years ago, actually. Um, famous for being able to throw cards. Uh, and get them to like stick into watermelons and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I know the guy you mean. Uh, but has a weird kind of little sub career as an actor. Um, he's in a lot of P.T. Anderson stuff. So he's, he's in Boogie Nights. He's the mm. narrator uh, for Magnolia. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a, a, a henchman in Tomorrow Never Dies, the Bond film. That's so weird. He also works a lot with uh, David Mamet. So he's in State of Maine just before this, uh, mm-hmm. in Red Belt uh, afterwards. Uh, shows up in the Prestige, obviously, obviously. film about yeah. magic, uh, and has quite a significant part in Deadwood. He's he's actually a, again another. This is the thing when we do the casting. Sorry to to hijack this, Tim. When we do casting, we're always like, oh, I love this actor. I want this actor to be in, in all my films. Whenever I'm doing something, it, it, you know, as a creative individual, and as he, we get to these fantasy pitches, fucking sling Adam Driver in it. I love Adam Driver. <laughs> oh, you know, I love Gary Oldman. You don't end up doing that. You're trying to find someone who fits the fits the cast, fits the time, fits the bill, fits yeah. the role, etc., etc. So obviously, like any casting agent does, and you end up going with people you wouldn't think. And Ricky Jay is a really interesting person because I like him. He's a good he's a good performer in more ways than one, and that's a really good addition to this universe, in my opinion. I don't know what his role is like if it's tiny or big or not, but that that's yeah, that's a good shout. I like interesting. That. Yeah, I'm intrigued. So with no further ado, let's get into the pitch. Let's do it. Let's get into it. The film opens with Danny and Tess at the Scrovegni Chapel in Padua, admiring the fresco cycle by Giotto, and discussing Tess's desire to get back into making art. Danny encourages her, saying that they should both be free to pursue their passions, but is interrupted by Terry Benedict, who has managed to track them down. Benedict reveals that after the gang cleaned him out in the last film, he has channeled considerable resources into tracking them down. Once he realised Reuben was involved, it was clear that the gang was also using Ruben's businesses to launder the money they stole, and through that, he has uncovered the identities of all 11. We get a montage of the others being apprehended by Benedict Schoons. Okay. So, so, kind of, yeah, yeah. Fairly along similar sort of lines so far. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. I wonder if Tim's going to do the... It's going to go like... Whoop, the switch and go crazy. Yeah. Or is he going to try and fix what's already there? Okay, yeah, I, guess, I guess we'll find out. We'll find out. We will find out, yeah. Benedict explains that he wants the gang to pay back all the money they stole, plus interest... Again, similar to, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. We'll turn them over to the authorities, as well as ruining them and anyone they care about. But the authorities are aliens. It's a bit different. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. In between the first film and the second film, Earth has been invaded and taken over by aliens. Okay, good. 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 It's it's (laughs) 10 Cloverfield Lane, Ocean's 12 mashup. (laughs) Danny asks where Tess figures into all of this, and Benedict says she's free to go. Tess offers to come with Danny, but he tells her to go home while Benedict takes Danny back to Las Vegas, where the Eleven have been gathered. I think we're just calling them the Eleven. That's the Eleven. Cool. Working out how much of their score they have left, the gang realises they are short by about half. So Benedict tells them that for the time being, 
they can work it off by helping him ruin a business rival. Julie Kassman, a real estate tycoon, has begun muscling his way into Las Vegas, starting with a fancy new hotel and casino called The Dragon. Rather mm. than robbing The Dragon, as Kassman's fortune is mostly invested elsewhere, Benedict wants the Eleven to ruin it, besetting Kassman with so many problems that he abandons his plans in Las Vegas. Mm. Oh, okay. So a, a little bit drawing from 13 as well, yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, very interesting. The Eleven go to work on The Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a fucking anime line if I've ever heard one. <laughs> the Eleven go to work on the dragon. Basha and the Malloys tamper with the building's air conditioning, introducing a subtle but distinctly unpleasant smell through the hotel and casino, and alter the casino's face recognition software to keep giving false positives. Livingston reprograms the lighting to subliminally drive people toward the exits. Frank and Linus sabotage a magic show featuring a cameo by Bruce Willis as the Fuck magician. Off. You've got Ricky Jay in this film. We've got Bruce Willis doing magic. You've got an actual magician. And you're like, nah, Bruce Willis. Oh, my God. What kind of magic he'd be doing? Like, sawing a woman in half. Oh, God. Okay. I, I picture him with a absolutely terrible toupee. Oh, fantastic. Um, Right, sorry. Where Frank is set on fire and threatens to sue, and Yen and Saul both pose as extremely demanding high rollers. During these various capers, a well-dressed man can be seen watching the group in the background. Although the shots draw very little attention to this. Do we know who this well-dressed man is, or is it a secret to later? It, it will be revealed. So mm. it's, it's shot in a way that we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Who's the mysterious guy in the okay. background? Interesting, okay. interesting. Danny Dyer? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll believe in UFOs. I'm the fucking king of England, aren't I? <laughs> I built Westminster Abbey, or at least oh, my ancestors did. He's the one who taught Don Cheadle his linguistic skills. <laughs> I would explain a lot. While Danny and Rusty are arranging all this, they briefly deal with Roman Nagel, a forger who creates fake chips for the dragon, Pamela Hunkel, an expert in computer vision who helps scramble the cameras, and Orlan Ortiz, a chemist who provides the aircon stink chemical. Well, that's a hell of a sentence there, Tim. Aircon yeah. stink chemical. I'm all about it. It's interesting. So, so you're again you're taking the, the subplot of 12, where it's rather than the guy who's... Uh, what's it? He's, he's he's not like a mystery shopper. He's a critique or something. Who's who's? I can't remember his name now. He's oh. the yeah. He's the like the uh the reviewer for the hotel. The reviewer. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Yeah. Um, the thing I do with films. That's the way I was looking yeah. for review. <laughs> um. Yes. So you've taken that plot but made it bigger and affect the whole hotel. Yeah. Nice. I like it. All three of them ask if this makes them a new member of. Oceans 12. Roll credits. <laughs> credits. <laughs> An idea that Danny shoots down very quickly, saying they don't need a 12th member. Danny, Rusty, Linus, Livingston and the Malloys plan to steal a piece of software they can use to rig the Dragon slot machines. But upon breaking into Stanford's computer science labs, they find that the air-gapped computer containing the software has already been taken and replaced with an obsidian statuette of a fox. Rusty recognises this as the work of the Night Fox, a notorious thief who typically only operates in Europe and steals fine art and antiquities. Okay, again, keeping the notions 12 yes, yeah. little bits, bits and pieces okay. there. Okay. Returning to their base of operations, the gang are greeted by the Night Fox, the well-dressed man from earlier. Ah, uh, nice. He explains that he saw their heist as a challenge to his skills as a thief, so now he wants to compete for the same item against them. Okay, bit chaotic. He reveals that Kasman has somehow acquired the Imperial Seal of China. Seal being uh, a physical thing. 
a totem, if you will, of a government or power or an emperor, as opposed to the song <laughs> Kiss on a Rose. Or the marine or, am- ma- mammal. Yes, or Heidi yes. Klum's ex-husband, yeah. The sea dog. <laughs> uh, the sea dog being uh, the mammal, not... Yar! <laughs> <laughs> We're all aware of what the Imperial Seal of China is. <laughs> a jade seal, arf arf, that he has... <laughs> That has Baby. been lost for one thing. It's like Barry fucking Lewis in here. Um, that has been lost for 1,000 years and is the most expensive missing antique in the history of the world. Interesting. Damn. Casman stores it in his penthouse at the Dragon uh, among his other expensive collectibles and is planning to return it to the Chinese in return for being the only Western developer allowed to open resorts in Macau. That is actually an interesting plot point. Interesting. It's... Actually, feels like real world stakes interest rather than just the generic. I want some money. I, I'm already liking that, Tim. Also, it's a it's a real thing. The Imperial Seal of China is yes. the most expensive missing item in the world. Yep. Yes, um, rather than the first stock ever, which is yeah. just <laughs> fucking boring as yeah. treasure. Just not interesting. This is a nice, colourful visual yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. It's a physical item, and it has yeah, a, it has a cultural representation. So you've got the kind of ties yeah. to Macau and that way it actually has relevance to the, the locations and the culture there and that makes sense. Yeah. So two of them are going up against it to try and steal it. So one of them is Indiana Jones who thinks it belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> and the other is communist Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Sign me up. Danny and the others realise that the seal, not that seal, <laughs> would be worth far more than they owe to Benedict and agree to the Night Fox's wager. Investigating the security of Casman's penthouse, they find that the seal is incredibly well protected. I mean, I assume you saw him in the Kiss from a Rose video. He's got those abs. <laughs> they were just well, they're, he's, well he's worried about being attacked by wolves again. It makes sense. Makes mm. sense. The penthouse is accessed via a private elevator that requires Casman's thumbprint, has a pressure-sensitive floor that runs on a separate power grid to the rest of the hotel, and is watched by security cameras and guards posted on it overlooking buildings. The collection room is protected by a safe door, is monitored for changes in temperature, and if anything even touches the display case the seal is stored in, the seal drops safely into the case's base and is inaccessible until Casman overrides the alarm. This is the classic Oceans thing where Brad Pitt is just reeling off all the bollocks. Yes. <laughs> it's a 65 with a 920 Casman and the blah, 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 and the blah, 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 blah. Apparently he found that like the most difficult dialogue to reel off. Of the, It's all of this just... It's a bogey with a twenty-five sixty-two, and like, yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm imagining like the, yeah, the map, <laughs> and they're all like laying it out and stuff. And, mm. and if that happens, it drops an inaccessible thing until he comes back, and blah blah blah. Yeah, this is, this is very oceans. I'm appreciating it. The eleven begin to tail Casman more closely, while still wrecking havoc at the dragon, leading to several close calls with Goran Brill, Casman's curator and security expert, who begins to suspect something is up. Benedict also becomes suspicious and finds out about Casman's ownership of the Jade Seal. He orders Danny and the others to steal the seal and deliver it straight to him, robbing them of the opportunity to sell it themselves. Tensions rise among the Eleven, and Linus accuses Danny of having no real plan for how they can get out from under Benedict's thumb. I'm Jason Bourne now, motherfucker, I can tell you off. <laughs> Despite arguments, the team manages to acquire a copy of Casman's thumbprint and creates screens that will shield them from the view of the penthouse watchman. They hack into a concept car in Casman's collection, using it to slowly raise the heat in the room so a person won't be detected. Ah. Interesting. 
they managed to arrange a 45 second window of time for the pressure sensitive floors and access the feeds for the security cameras. However, the team can't seem to find a solution to the seal's display case, which is too sensitive to trick and would take too long to break into. Struggling, Danny calls Tess, asking her if she regrets choosing a life on the lam where she can't settle down. She reassures him and says that while her new life is unpredictable, it has given her the confidence to return to her art. She tells Danny that men like Benedict and Casman only think about the monetary value of things, but she and him are able to follow their passion. Inspired following his call to Tess, Danny has an idea and reconvenes the Eleven to detail his plan. We jump ahead to the group's reaction, with Linus, Yen and Livingston all claiming that the idea is too risky and departing the group's hideout. The rest of the gang begin final preparations for the heist, with Rusty visiting Roman, Pamela and Orland for assistance. Each of them insists that their new role proves they are the 12th member of the gang, to which Rusty <laughs> offers a non-committal, sure. In between bites of taffy or something. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, Rusty arranges a meeting with the Night Fox and asks him why he is so determined to show up the Eleven. The Night Fox claims that the Eleven are simply con men and grifters, whereas he is a true artist of theft. That's better than just being a rich ponce, I like that. Performing heists for the thrill of it. Rusty departs the meeting and the camera lingers slightly on a large package in his car passenger seat. (laughs) In his crotch. Horny (laughs) Tim is back, lingering on large packages. (laughs) Leave the gun, take the large package in the passenger seat. (laughs) The evening of the heist arrives. The Eleven, or more accurately at this point, the Eight. Ah, Ocean's (laughs) Eight reference. Ah. Wait. Struggle to adjust to their plan to deal with their reduced numbers but managed to get access to Casman's penthouse. As Danny and Basher... Oh, Basher's back. Oh, good. As Danny and <laughs> They're all back! He, he's there the whole time. He's been named I specifically. Know, I know. Oh, oh, he's so clearly with... focused on here. The, the the mute Basher is working on crack. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just had his wisdom teeth voice. out. Yeah. yeah. As Danny and Basher work on cracking the safe, we see the Night Fox, observing the heist from an angle not covered by the Eleven screens. Satisfied, he enters a helicopter, which takes off into the sunset-lit Las Vegas sky. Danny and Basher enter the collection room with a large bag and carefully approach the seal display case. Danny and Basher nervously eye each other, and Danny prepares to shatter the display case. We cut to outside the collection room as Danny and Basher hastily exit with their large bag containing a seal-sized object. Quietly singing, Kiss from a Rose. Um, <laughs> They cross the room, setting off the pressure alarms before abseiling down to a balcony several floors below. However, the Night Fox flies in using a wingsuit and parachute oh, and steals yes. the bag from them, leaving them to be apprehended by Casman's security. He's gone just that's, cause on their asses. I love it. That's uh, Ocean's 13 again, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, nice. This answers a question I had later. <laughs> At Benedict's offices, the Night Fox arrives with the seal. He has been working with Terry all along Damn, to ensure the Eleven cannot ca- challenge his position as world's greatest thief. With Danny and Basher, Basher captured and Linus, Jen and Livingston AWOL, Rusty attempts to maintain calm, but several of the Eleven begin to panic. Casman and Brill interrogate Danny, who lets slip that Benedict hired them to steal the seal. Danny, you fucking rat. <laughs> the next day, Casman confronts Benedict and reveals that since Benedict lost his money to the Eleven, Casman has been quietly acquiring Benedict's holding company through shell corporations. He is poised to make a hostile takeover, but will hold off and return for the Imperial Seal, and will even make Benedict a partner in his Macau operation. Benedict agrees, but when Brill examines the seal, he discovers... 
It's a fake. We cut to the Night Fox, placing the real Jade Seal in his own private collection, located at his mansion in the south of France. Hanging out with Vincent Cassell and his yeah. cool capoeira <laughs> skills. Yeah! Just in the background. With Benedict and Casman unable to track down the Night Fox or the Seal, Danny reveals he knows where the Night Fox lives and will share the information in return for his and Basher's freedom and the Eleven being re- released from Benedict's service. Benedict is initially reluctant, but Casman pressures him to accept, and Danny provides the location. As Benedict and Casman's goons close in on the Night Fox's mansion, we follow him as he searches for the source of a beeping noise. Benedict and Casman accompany Danny and Basher out of the dragon's main entrance, where the rest of the Eleven are waiting for them. In France, the Night Fox finally realises the beeping is coming from within the Jade Seal, and smashes it open to reveal a transmitter. I would love it to smash it open and realise he's ruined the most precious <laughs> thing. The beeping was coming from underneath it. Oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, Just fuck before... it, my phone was ringing. Shit. <laughs> Just before he is blackbagged by Benedict and Casman's men, Casman gets a call from his security team and discovers that while the Night Fox is in their custody, the Jade Seal he had was also a fake. Ha ha, fools. <laughs> Multiple fakes. Smoke bomb. Peace out. We cut back to the evening of the robbery. The large bag that Danny and Basher carried into the collection room contained yen and the fake seal. Classic, he's small. Cla- Put him yep. in the bag. Yeah, he's a grease yeah. man. That's what, what you need. They trigger the display case's security measures, with the jade seal dropping safely into the base unit. Then they smash the glass and depart with the fake seal, just as we saw. With Casman's security focused on chasing Danny and Basher, Yen sets up a rope pulley, enabling Linus and Livingston to enter the collection room without triggering the penthouse's floor. Imagining like Mission Impossible, like Descent style. Mm. Yeah. Together they break into the base unit and remove the real seal, then evade Casman's security when they finally arrive. Danny explains to Casman and Benedict that the real seal is headed back to China, and while Casman was acquiring Benedict's company, several Chinese firms have been doing the same to Casman's. <laughs> Both men now have a new majority shareholder to please, says Danny, as he and the rest of the Eleven turns to Yen, who says, I suggest you work on your resume. <laughs> Is that the first English word Yen says? Yes. Oh, nice. Back in Italy, Danny reunites with Tess at their home, and the pair walk through to her studio, where several partially made copies of the Jade Seal are laying around. Okay, I see what she did there. Tess asks if her work held up to inspection, and Danny replies that he never doubted that it would. But then his head bobs around and Danny Ocean like, because oh, <laughs> George Clooney's a wily one. Tess asks if this makes her Ocean's 12. And Danny smiles. Ah, and says, fuck off. There we go. <laughs> nice. The baby is Ocean's 12. <laughs> <laughs> you are merely the vessel for my child. <laughs> I was like, wow, Danny, what a prick thing to Only say. Only the son um, for the ocean can be another ocean. <laughs> the lineage. Uh, no, um, credits. <laughs> yes. Some funky, jazzy. Ba, 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 cool bam, bam. I can say, my first question is, what kind of soundtrack are we looking at? Because as as bad as the second film is, it still has a good soundtrack, and the first one has a cracking soundtrack. I think yes, the same thing fact, again. I I had the soundtrack to all three on loop while I was writing this. No, so very smart. That's a Spotify playlist yeah. that was like the complete Ocean's <laughs> trilogy collection or something. I did a similar yeah. thing for Blade. Sure. It works. Gets you uh, I do the same thing when I write my reviews. It gets me back into the mind of the film, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, okay. It's, it's, Did you do it, it when you on... reviewed Cats, Matthew? Because I don't believe you. Uh, I'd have you know. Yeah, I did. Oh, God. <laughs> I liked it, Tim. That was good. I have a few... Sm- I, as, I, as I hinted at earlier, 
I have a few small silly little points. One was like, I kind of don't like that Julia Roberts is sidelined, but then I'm like, I now see why you sidelined her. Sidelined, sidelined her. That's makes sense that she actually is playing an integral role without being seen to play an integral role, and it's hidden cleverly rather than just like, eh, she's off in the background doing something. Um, so I'm okay with that. I, and again, I shouldn't be, but I am. I get it. That makes sense. I like that we didn't discuss this earlier, by the way. I like that Matt Damon's mum doesn't show up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And by that, I mean the character playing Matt Damon's character's mother. Actual Matt Damon's um, mother. Yeah. Playing herself. That was stupid. Fight. And then in Ocean's 13, his dad turns up. Yeah. Yep. Like, the fuck is this? Yeah, they do. Um, the, I, I don't know if the, his mum showing up is the worst twist in Ocean's 12, but the fact no. that they then reuse it in 13 costs that film several points. Although they do it better in 13, it must be said. It it does actually work better. I agree, I agree. Um, It's interesting that you've hewn close to the original. Actually, you stayed a lot closer to 12 than I I thought you would. Um, You've improved it, definitely. I I, think you've refined it. I I think you've taken some elements, but I think the change of scenery makes a huge difference because 12 is so European, for want of a better phrase. I think mm-hmm. the shift to Macau and changing it to, as I mentioned earlier, like that, the Jade Seal is a culturally significant thing to China. Precisely. You then tie that all together. And rather than them just sort of like, now we're on a bridge in France and talking for 20 minutes, you know, okay, cool. Yeah. This but feels that, a lot more interesting. Like the location is more mm-hmm. tied and gives it more relevance to the story. And I think that that's the kind of thing that drags it away from being too close to the original, which is a positive because I think, Mm. as you said, Matt, changing the scenery makes sense. It's classic heist, classic crime thriller Mm. kind of stuff. Is like, well, we've done America. We've done New York. What do we do next? Oh, we go to Europe. We go to whatever. Going to China and having like the ties to Macau and stuff is is a nice little touch and having those kind of, yeah, and having Yen show up and and be an integral thing, which is really cool as well. Yeah, I it makes sense that they, that like you said, like we said, it's a classic sequel thing. They say in the film, like, oh, you know, we're too hot to work in America to right now. Exactly. Yeah. But the but the problem is is that Europe doesn't really have a place that compares with Las Vegas, and so like obviously there 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 are places that are like Monaco and stuff like that, but they don't yeah, have yeah. quite the same not the same reputation. Yeah. Um. And so as much as it was like oh. Do we just want to have them doing another heist in Vegas? Is that too similar? Mm. I think it kind of has to be. I think I think you have to acknowledge that that is kind of integral to this franchise, and I think it shows that you know when uh, at least for this group, um, you know, and I think it shows that when they go off and try and do Europe and stuff, it's a worse film, and when they come back to Las Vegas in thirteen, it improves it significantly. I don't think those facts are, are unconnected yeah I, I i think just to mirror what everyone's already said slimming down the locations so mm. macau and you know the bits of france very 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 good call i i think too much bouncing around pivoting is what really makes oceans 12 quite painful at times um and also i would say it, it, it took me like you know uh, oceans 11 dictating a lot how things go forward etc this also feels like a bit a bit of prescience as it were in the sense that you've got Casino Royale in 2006 or whatever it was, where it's like, oh, it's Monaco. It's it's the classic Casino Royale setting. And then by Skyfall, the cinema has changed. The landscape in 2012 is so very different because it's like, we need to appeal to the Chinese market. We're now setting this in Macau and things like that. 
So I think you're already getting ahead of that before it's even happened. I think that's actually quite a, again, a, like, a, oh, wow, you guys saw the curve. You knew where the market was going to be. I mean, I yeah. should say that they, none of the film actually takes place in Macau. No, no. Um, well, it's just that, a, but... Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. thing that is, is spoken about and that, I, yeah. I don't know, maybe there would be some bits um, just to, you know, have... Wait, maybe, wait, no, maybe I misread something then. I assumed the dragon was in Macau. No, the that's dragon's me in being Las confused. Vegas. He's mus- oh shit! Ah, yeah. ah. Okay. muscling in on Terry Benedict's like so business. I, yes, I assume, ben, I right, assume okay. the dragon oh, was based that in Macau, and then is like working their way into Las Vegas because they have such a like a strong Do you want to run out of hold yes, on the, the Macau kind of casino. I mean, yeah. you could. Yeah, I mean, you I must could... admit, I actually, in terms of like offering suggestions, yeah. Tim said it, Macau. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Because I must admit, yeah. I think. That also gives you a lot of things with costumes and production. Because mm. again, as I was reading that in my head, I must again I must admit the same thing where I thought, oh, well, if he doesn't want this thing called the dragon, which again, you know, it's it, 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 terminology for let's face it, what you kind of think expect in this sort of a very loose Asian sort of setting, and, and that regular theme. I had seen in my head lots of big red and gold sort of things kicking off, and that kind of sort of very very lavish production design being very distinct from the Las Vegas scene, but again being quite. Uh, having that underbelly feel of it, that very mm. murky, unknown, almost criminal element to a lot of things. Like, what what kind of deals are going on at the table here? And if they they're trying to make sure he doesn't get a foothold in Las Vegas by stopping it here, and that there's going to be some sort of like you know uh, trade, not trade, uh, you know um, what's the one looking for here? Like agreements to get across the the thing. Blah blah. blah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a good note. Um, yeah. I think yeah. yeah. So originally, I had it that basically. Kasman was kind of going to basically return the the seal to the Chinese in return for being able to then like build mm. hotels and whatever in Macau because I believe I did some research at this point in 2004 there were only kind of Chinese casinos in Macau I think it was basically around this time that it started opening up to international development and it was yes. also around this time that it actually overtook Vegas uh, in terms of how much like money was made from casinos um, yeah, hence my so assumption yeah. that it was going to be like very prescient and ahead of its almost yeah. like oh we've shit we've uh, so again just to to get back to the whole collaborative fix element mm. I I personally would love this to be set in Macau personally mm. I still think you have got a lot of Vegas stuff you have got a lot of the interest there you can jig that around quite easily mm. the problem is you're right the the ownership from a, a Westerner feels out of place so suddenly Albert Brooks doesn't necessarily work and I'm like oh fuck maybe we have to recast it and I don't necessarily like that. Unless you use Gong Li, in which case I love that, Tim. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, tricky, tricky. But there's 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 wiggle room there, and I think yeah, of course, yeah. course, yeah, yeah, and I think, like you say, it, it, I, I was kind of torn in in taking them back to Vegas because I was like, oh, well, it'd be interesting to see them elsewhere, but equally, like, there are very few places in the world that have that same sheen to them is it skyfall that has the macau scene with like the komodo dragons and stuff yes yes exactly that would that kind of vibe would work really well where you see some like a a bit of crazy rich asian vibe as well exactly (laughs) yeah exactly although that's singapore but you know yeah i mean yeah yeah it's basically people with a lot of money and uh not a lot of oversight yeah (laughs) be able to do (laughs) crazy crazy stuff damn money plane yeah Money plane. <laughs> Let me see a dude fucking an alligator. Quick oh, money plane. Quick suggestion, Set it on a Tim. Plane. Set it on a plane. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer is Julie Casman. That's a good point. Um, yeah, my suggestion is 
Ocean's Monty Twelve Plane. versus Money Plane. <laughs> the crossover <laughs> we've all been waiting for. George um, Clooney finally shares the screen with Edge from WWE. <laughs> Am I Ocean's Twelve? <laughs> no, now fuck this alligator. He's like a foot taller than everyone <laughs> else. You're yeah, gonna I, love again, the bit I... where uh, Basher choke slams Edge. <laughs> <laughs> Don Cheadle is so tiny. <laughs> Edge is like oh. six six, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna find out how tall John John Cheadle is. <laughs> <laughs> Smaller, considerably smaller would be my guess. So my yeah, my complaint is where's the wrestlers, Tim? I thought that was agreed. Every oh, every yeah. episode's a crossover and every episode features wrestlers. This is the rules. I mean they Except have, they for have me. boxing in Oceans Eleven. I should have just had a, a wrestling match oh, going on. God, true, yeah, they do true. set it there's like they set up a whole Lennox Lewis thing. We never even talked about that. It's a weird yeah, like set a fight, isn't it? Yeah. Real life fight cool. thing because the mm. casinos take my money on fight night or whatever it's like. Yeah. Sure. Intra- just to just to talk about uh, Ocean's Thirteen again. Mm. Um, so you've taken on obviously you've, you've refined elements of Twelve. Mm-hmm. Great, love it. Keep keep things at work. Um, getting rid of the whole extra pursuers in the form of Catherine Zeta Jones's character. Fan- great, love that. Mm-hmm. In that shit right away. You've taken very very small amounts from Thirteen like that. That's good. That the sort of rival business, the, the dragon being this, you know, entity you're trying to you know ruin it as mm-hmm. opposed to rob it. That that again. I like that. I'm not going to spoil Ocean's 8, but there's some stuff in there from Ocean's 8 that I think could be oh, part of the okay. misdirect and stuff. I like that. So I guess the question I'm asking is, one, do you see another Ocean's film coming out of this? And two, more importantly, I guess they can't be 13 and 8 because you've taken bits, effectively. Yeah. Uh, not a bad I thing. Kind of, I kind of didn't concern myself with thinking about the franchise's no, future. In part because... Heists are really hard to write, guys. <laughs> I was like, I spent so yeah. long being like, okay, right, okay. What are all the moving parts in this? Like, how can I set it yeah. up? And and it's it it sounds ridiculous because you think like, well, I'm the one who creates all the problems that they then have to overcome. So you know, yeah. but you 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 obviously you want there to be significant things that they have to you you, you know you lay out overcome and you go like, stuff, how yeah. the hell are they, are they going to get away with this? Mm. Um, and then, then you have to think away. You have to think of a like a, something that sounds really impossible to get past, yeah. and then think your way past it. Um, and it's I, like quickly drawing a maze. It sounds easy, but it's actually really fucking hard. Yeah. You're like, um, oh, ten ten routes, but it doesn't work. Yeah. And I and I think the thing you can look because I think Ocean's Eleven is a is a really cleverly done heist, and yeah. I think both twelve and thirteen have kind of cheap twists and cheap. The the heists are not nearly as polished like the the yeah. kind of the things that they do to get around the security measures are not nearly as interesting and i think that's just from writer fatigue of just people going like oh i don't know do we just steal from some other films like <laughs> <laughs> it's homaging right I, yeah. I mean again you you're telling me about fucking like high so difficult right i mean for the last couple of years um stuart ashton's been sending me drafts of polybius saying what do you think about this <laughs> and um, <laughs> the amount of iterations and twists and abandoned plots and characters. And you're like, I, I want this now, but I, that does away with this entire character. There's no point in having that person. And it, heists are notorious for being problematic and also incredibly fucking rote and cliche. Like uh, the uh, Dan Harmon seems to be quite obsessed with the fuckers. We did like a com- the community episode and there's a the most recent, there's a Rick and Morty episode about it, um, about heists. It basically just take it just shreds it. 
Yes. Uh, hold. Yeah, it just ends. I'm in. It ends with the two of them just being like, which I planned all along, which I planned all along, which I planned all along. Yeah. It's And, and the thing is, well, I think with, with regards to that, I mean, separate plug here, I don't need to do this for our own particular audience. I probably know because Ash of the Plebeian's Heist is already out and it's very good and it's a very well done heist. It's actually, it's it, it's so difficult because coming back to the Knives Out thing, it's a good murder mystery in the sense that it's familiar. It's not a good murder mystery because it's doing a lot of new things. In the same way that this is no no slight on yourself, Tim. Your Ocean's Fix is good because it does familiar stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not doing things that are trying too hard to break the mold and therefore feel out of place or weird. And it's not too lazy that it's like, oh, I fucking know where you're going with this. This is dull. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels comfortable. And again, I don't want that to sound derogatory because it's not. Because um, Ocean's Eleven, again, doesn't break the mold. No. It doesn't. Uh, confuse everybody. No one comes out and says, wait, so who was the what now? Every- people know what the fuck happens. It's like, oh, SWAT team. Got it. Right. Mm. Camera's fake. Got it. It's quite easy to follow. It's comfortable viewing. And that's why I think it's aged quite well. Um, there are so many heist films where it's just, which are literally like, I mean, for fuck's sake, um, Inception is not particularly uh, convoluted, but people don't fucking understand it. Uh, yeah, but is in- it real then, Matt? Is it a dream? Is it real? Um, I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote. Hang on. I'm going to call this quote. One second. Who knows? Hang on. Hang on. No, 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 no. There's a quote here. Quote no, no, here. No. I think from Jack Chambers. Who knows? It says, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair. But no. Uh, Fair. <laughs> like uh, Avengers Endgame. It's not excessively complicated as a, as a time heist. Ant-Man isn't a fucking complicated heist. Mm. It's it's like, you know, you can you, it's not trying to yeah it, I, I just want it, elevating it above the laziness of yes, them. yes. his mum turns up and it's all okay yeah I think you've <laughs> his mum's turn up with a note saying he's sick and he can't play anymore yeah. he has to come home and turns can, out can she's Linus not really do a heist sick. today yeah he's not really sick oh oh fucking ridiculous um no I, as I say I think you've made a very um a very comfortable successor you've taken what worked in 12 which was a handful of things and you've done away with a load of bloat that didn't need to be in there. So I think it's good. Again, I have a thing about, oh, you're missing out on certain people being in it. It's like, one, as you stated, trying to figure out when these people are all available. Nightmare. Uh, you've got the ensemble cast nightmare we've all faced with certain of these fixes. Uh, what do we do with all these characters? But they all feel like they come up every now and again, do bits and pieces. I can feel there'll be lots of extra scenes, obviously, for word count that aren't included. Mm. Just little quote bits like, what, what's, uh, what are the fucking thing brothers up to? You know? Khan and Affleck, what are they up to? They're just doing some stuff in the background. Fair enough, no problem. <laughs> at all. That, that, the Malloys or whatever they are? Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah, that yep. And the new characters don't feel too cluttered. They feel like a, a separate entities and then finally a unit. It works nicely. I think I think it's a I think it's a solid and as you say, Tim, heists are hard to write in the same way that uh, it, it, weirdly reminiscent, I imagine, of your um your smoke and aces pitch from the previous season. Um, another one that's like that's a lot of things to juggle. That's a hard thing to write to mm. to, to to juggle. Also featuring Andy Garcia, that's weird. Oh yes, very true. Um, so yeah, I think it's a solid job. I, I say my main critique is that I was a little confused with regards to setting, but now I'm aware. I'm like, no, fuck you, set it in China. Yeah, <laughs> or Macau specifically. Yeah, yeah that makes <clears> sense. And I think that that adds a, a very interesting dynamic to it. I think Soderbergh would bring a very interesting visual to it. Um, that does bring in a problem with Brooks. Possibly, I think you could work it because. Americans. Mm. I don't think anyone would necessarily care. And if you didn't, they'd probably want someone like Jet Li or someone, you know, yeah. semi-established or something. And it would, it would kind of work, but who knows? But yeah, 
I overall like it. I think it's good. Me too. But, much like Danny Ocean does, I'm going to call in the expert. <laughs> oh, Christ. The Ocean's expert, as it were. So, Emma, you have actually read the pitch, right? Yes. Uh, do you have any questions for Tim? Any, any follow-ups? <laughs> anything like that? As, uh, the, as the Ocean's trilogy expert. <laughs> I noticed that in this pitch, Tim, they, they being the Ocean's crew, didn't gain anything at the end of it. Uh... No, I guess not. It wasn't a heist. Well, to be fair, that kind of feels... I, I guess that kind of works better than in Ocean's 12. Were they also... Did they get anything else? Because they pay off the something... I mean, that's 13's the charity, isn't it? What do we do with the But they 12? still gain something out in 13, don't they? Well, in 13, yes, but not... What do we get in 12? Because they're paying back the debt to Benedict, aren't they? Yeah, but they still have everything that they steal beforehand, don't they? Because doesn't the um, Night Fox's mentor say he will pay off the debt? Oh, from his side of things, they get from, to keep their own yeah, money. Yeah, so they'll then have everything that they stole beforehand. So there is a heist in the sense of they come out with something at the end of it. Whereas this one, I just <laughs> what feel they already needs had. to be... Yeah, they all learned <laughs> the lesson of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most valuable heistable of all yeah yeah it's the real the thing Disney was inside heist. all along the real treasure <laughs> is the friends we made along the way yeah the i yeah. guess it's a fair point i just i enjoyed the pitch i think it's better than the um little mermaid one so that's high praise indeed um but i do think that well they they end up being the ones who return the seal to china so, oh, so they would get the oh, prestige so award that goes with it. Now are they? No, no, no. They'd, no. they'd get the they get money. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and the the contracts to do whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> so do they get paid for the seal then? Because that's I imagine not they get mentioned. political power. I think I think they would get a considerable amount of money for it. Yes, I did. Yes. I didn't put that Finders in because uh, um, word count. Yeah, word, word count. <laughs> and and uh, when you when you're at the final wrap up moments, you don't want to kind of. Uh, bog it down too much with mm. but That's i think yeah they would definitely be um uh and, and also there's the fact that yen now owns terry benedict and julie casman's businesses mm-hmm. basically so he's he's come out well okay i didn't read any um moments between rusty and danny in your pitch which is what makes the oceans films the ocean films. not sexual tension enough <laughs> <laughs> Look, what's wrong with two hot men getting it on? Um, I and mean, let's be honest, nothing? Ocean's Eleven Brad Pitt is the best Brad Pitt. No, 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 no. <laughs> Why? What are you no. going to go with, Matt? I've got to find out now. One second. <laughs> I'll be very careful with this because this is this. We're entering the thirst territory now, but I'm going to make sure. I, you, you guys keep talking about yourself. I'm going to come back with my favourite, or the peak Brad Pitt, Pitt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, a lot of those, a lot of the the charming moments, the uh, kind of more improvised moments, you just have to make the make the space for and allow because so much of it was kind of improvised and is down to the charisma of those two people. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, there there would hopefully be plenty of of chance. I didn't write in them like sitting down to watch Oprah or anything like that, but <laughs> <laughs> but those moments would it would be in there. Okay, uh, probably not the Oprah. Okay, that's that's fair enough. Uh, 
I also think that having Linus's parents involved at some point in the crime was a very good touch that was missed as well. Like it's no, we just spent two hours <laughs> talking about how bullshit that was. Well, you're wrong. So <laughs> I mean, we're definitely not. I, no, I thought having that at the end was an additional twist in the heist. That is what makes those films. Good. You can't guess them. I'm, as I'm sure Jack has mentioned, I'm very good at guessing things, and I, I like that. That you know, like, oh shit, no, wait, they were involved too. It's, it's I, I nice... would agree with that. I, I find if I'm if I'm fooled by a movie, I will elevate it immensely in my eyes because I've seen so much of a formula that I'm like, I know where you're going. Oh fuck, you mm-hmm. didn't. So I will I will give you that. That's why but there's I like also the times prestige. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's that's yeah. But this makes sense. I think what makes a, a good twist great is that when you watch it again you can see mm-hmm. the things pointing towards it and the bits with his parents just come out of nowhere yeah. there's, there's nothing that sets them up beyond the fact that we know yeah. that his dad is a famous thief yeah okay that's, that's it only that's in the first one it's not mentioned really again in the second one mm. okay. it's, if, if it had been set up better like um we would have been necessarily okay with it and then maybe a bigger actor cameo possibly i don't know it would have been like oh okay i see you go with this but it was one that almost nobody liked, critically or, or, or fans. So, um, I would like to see how it would link into 13. Well, we asked about this because I, I saw bits of 13 and 8 that were mm. used in the story for, for 12, or Tim's 12. Mm. So, yeah, we're uh, not, not my problem, Guff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm only here to fix Ocean's 12. Fair enough. Um, my logic would be 13 would be completely different. I don't think you can, because I think there's too many similar qualities in this mm. particular pitch. That 13 doesn't exist anymore. Neither does 8. You'd have to be, 13 would be something so eight, radically eight new. 8 could still exist. 8 could exist because it's eight so separate. 8 could definitely exist because it's yeah. separate. Um, but there's one point, I don't, again, I don't want to spoil it for the audience, but there's one definite point in there. I'm like, that's very much like the end of 8. Interesting, interesting. But again, I don't want to... Mm. I don't want to... I'll spoil 12. I will not spoil 8. <laughs> I really, really love Ocean's Eleven. I love the heist uh, aspect of it. I mm. love the relationships that they all have together, the friendships that they have. I love the um, I love the improv mm. of everything, um, and I enjoy how it's made. I think it's a good watching experience. And Twelve as a continuation of that friendship, relationship, and improv is good. The story itself is. Naff. However, the relationship and everything, especially between Danny and Rusty, um, and the bit where Julia Roberts plays Julia Roberts. No. It's the bit I remember the most. That's so terrible. And I said that just to piss you off, Matt. Yeah. Uh, how are you with the dancing lasers? <laughs> oh, fuck me. That was really stupid, and I hated okay, the music. Okay, we, we have ground there, at least. That's good. Yeah, that was really we were- stupid. I'll be I'd be interested if you listen to this once the episode goes live. If you listen to this, because obviously we don't want to relitigate our entire discussion of uh, twelve yeah, and thirteen. We make our points, but we um, yeah. I think I think the points you make about like the the relationships and the dynamics between the characters are still there in twelve. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think it's it's I think it's a shame because they start chipping off members of the cast until there's barely any left um and i would like more of them mm-hmm. hanging out as a group rather than and i think that's what makes thir- that's what makes 13 yeah. good because yeah, you see that relationship especially with um i can't remember his name after his heart attack yeah ruben ruben yes, yes. yeah the fact that they that brings them all together yeah 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 no i so, think that's um, 
that's what I enjoy the most about the uh, the films. Well, uh, I'm going to go because uh, I've got work tomorrow and I've got to get up at half four. So Oof. as the words of Linus, I'll see you when I see you. And <laughs> a fucking sign off and everything. There's a better sign off than I do. On that note, it's time to wrap up the episode. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash sequelizers. Nice and easy. You can find all of our outtakes, all of our bonus content, discounts on merch, loads of good stuff. Go and check it out. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we really like the extra stuff we do. In the interseason stuff, there's whole episodes that recorded specifically for Patreon. You can go and check them out. There's like dozens of hours of extra content you can get stuck into if you're caught up in all the episodes. It's a good excuse to jump on the Patreon and go and check that all out. You can follow us, of course, on social media. You can join our Discord. You can find all the links to all this good stuff, including the links to our shop at sequelizers.com. The one-stop shop for everything sequelizers, basically. Nice and easy. If you want to follow me, I am JLW Chambers on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the social medias. And, uh, yeah, I will argue about wrestlers and uh, <laughs> helicopters helicopters yeah there's a reference to things that the main podcast doesn't contain <laughs> thanks Matt there was a helicopter in the um, Ocean's 12 fix there, there go. you go exactly exactly uh, if you want to come and sing Kiss from a Rose with me via social media then <laughs> there we go Tim how can people follow you on social media uh, trivia underscore lad on Twitter is where I do most of my social media ring um so that's the best place to follow me yeah feel free to uh point out all the failed aspects of my pitch there um or to shower me with praise whichever you'd like to do matthew hello where can people follow you on social media stogs s-t-o-g-h-z um you can also go to the red right hand.co.uk my reviews you can go to cheeseman.com for the things that i make I've been in a few casinos. I don't like them. I don't care for gambling. But you're um, also in Ashton's on the Polybius Scythe, right, man? But I'm also in Ashton's Polybius Scythe three times. That's correct. People still haven't figured out all three yet, so it's good. I, yeah, I've been challenging people on Discord to try and work out where mm. where where Alec is, because Alec is on screen. Funnily Alec enough, is in there. That's right. In a casino. There's a little tease for you. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a little tease. I'm sort of in it, not really, mm. um, which I have now revealed on the Discord. And if you follow me or my band on social media, you'll find that out. <laughs> or you see my name in the credits, you know, there you go. Mm-hmm. And yeah, old, old Baldy Stogs over there shows up a few times as well. Sneaky. I'm Very not sneaky. in it at all. Or am I? Oh, oh. You're, the, you're the Night Fox hanging around in the background. Exactly. <laughs> For the third Tim's, time is, Tim's time is always monopolized by me uh, saying, Tim, film this. <laughs> anyway on that note thank you very much for listening everybody we appreciate your support whether that's reviewing us subscribing to us listening to us or on Patreon and we'll see you next week for the continuation of season 7 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.